On the Pilot TV podcast this week, we're back up on the top floor with Gemma Whelan in Series 2 of ITV's The Tower, experiencing the downside of dating celebrities with Rose Matafeo in Series 3 of Starstruck on BBC One, and reinventing ourselves alongside Alistair Petrie in the following events are based on a pack of lies. Also on BBC One. Plus, I find the time to bang on about the final seasons of Mayans MC and the third season of Warrior on Sky. And speaking of Warrior, that show's creator Jonathan Tropper joins us later on the show to talk all about his martial arts epics triumphant return. Uh, and that's not all, because Ruth Wilson is also with us this week to talk to Boydie about the woman in the wall. I'm James Dyer, and welcome to the Pilot TV Podcast, your essential guide to every show that matters, and a podcast that solemnly swears that, unlike last week's 250th episode, this one will not go on for three and a half hours. Oh my God. <laughs> I genuinely, I I was, wasn't was joking when I said we should have handed out marathon gels. That was a long endurance was, I mean, the last test. one we did, Kay, was 10 hours, so actually I think we've slimmed down quite Whoa. nicely. Mm. 200 was was the proper beast but uh, but we do actually have to finish on time today not least of all because i have a hard out in 90 minutes boyd is in edinburgh swatting around with tv producers and like drinking champagne and Kate, of course you like to spend as little time with us as humanly possible well uh, i haven't eaten and you know i get hungry you do so, yeah. you do We're get hungry and i've had some no edamame so i feel fine no i, no no, I was just noshing edamame before yeah we, you we were noshing off something yeah, <laughs> but, yeah. steady <laughs> steady <laughs> <laughs> Good one, Boydie. Eh? Yes, Even funnier yes, yes. in Edinburgh. Mm. Oh, that's right. Yeah, Boydie's on the fringe, and not, of course, the TV show. Just good, good joke. <laughs> anyway, anyway, uh, how are we doing? Joke. <laughs> TV nerd joke. We might be mentioning fringe a bit later on. Uh, oh. I um, yeah. How are you feeling post live show? Have you recovered? It does feel like we only did this like just a day ago or something? Yeah. Oh, I'm exhausted. Because all right, we're very well to you. Bang on about how it was three and a half hours long, but I was the one on stage for the first hour and a half. <laughs> Yes, I, I don't think I don't appreciate let, it. Let me just remind you. Um, yes, lots of people actually at the Edinburgh TV Festival where I am currently, as I speak, uh, in Edinburgh. God, I've lost the power of lost the power of grammar. <laughs> oh you got to do lally. <laughs> yeah, have, no, loads of people come up to me and said um, how much they enjoyed the two hundred fiftieth episode, um, which is amazing. Yeah, seriously, loads of like because half the TV industry listens to our podcast. I hope you realise that. Um, oh god, that's scary. terrifying! Yeah, it's that terrifying. is really fucking terrifying. Yeah, yeah, I wish you hadn't said that. Yeah, um, I bumped into one scriptwriter, famous scriptwriter who I won't name, who was literally standing there. This is this morning. Like, in, it's, the whole TV festival takes place in the Edinburgh International Conference Centre, and there's loads yeah. of like little bits where you can stand there, perch on a table and stuff. And this guy was <laughs> standing there, perched on a table with his laptop, writing a script, like writing his slate script. Oh, wow. And I was like, oh my God, you need to have a break. He's like, yeah, seriously. Um, so it all happens at the TV festival. Yes. And I am recovering from the exhaustion. A bit was very entertaining and enjoyable and everyone was brilliant. And I was obviously robbed um, of the Bake Off Prize by the bitter and twisted. Listen, <laughs> listen, stop. let me stop you right there. I will yeah. not hear a word against Craybakes, Cray for a start. Come on, man. We know how easy it is. To, we know how easy it is to bake a brownie. Don't take it out on me. <laughs> wow, he's throwing shade back towards Craybakes. To be fair, it's very big of you, Kay, to 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 not have anything bad said about Craybakes when he, of course, threw shade at your cookie and voted for the far superior lemon drizzle cake. Yeah, James, I know, but I could be petty over that. But then I look at my overall triumph. <laughs> and I think, you know, who cares? Who gives a shit? Actually, yeah. Craybakes thinks. Yeah. Yeah. No, yeah. I'm joking, Craig. I really do care. But I care more about what Tom and Remy think. Because they liked your cookie. Yes. Yes. Crucially. I mean, that's that's perfectly reasonable. <laughs> the okay, unbiased good. judges. 
Yeah. The unbiased judges, yes, that's yeah. right. Yeah. Mm. Um, Boydie, can you share anything about this TV festival? Have you seen anything exciting yes. that our listeners might want to know? Yes. Well, uh, fun, I'm glad you asked that because um, in, in the what have you been watching section to which you traditionally open this podcast, but I've basically been watching things at the Edinburgh TV Festival. So I have, and those are, um, you know, new announcements, new clips. I, this morning I sat next to Jack Rook, the creator of Big oh. Boys, of course, who is in brilliant form. And in the Channel 4 session, they showed a clip from Series 2 of Big Boys, which I have to say, I've seen a lot of clips at the TV Festival down the years. This was one of the most outrageous and funny. <laughs> I, don't, I won't give it away, but um, let's just say genitals were involved, is what I'm going to say. Good and um, leave, you to imagine, <laughs> leave you to imagine what it could possibly be. But it was absolutely hilarious. It brought the house down. And made me. Make, I mean, already hotly anticipated for season two. Kay, you're on Sev season two, aren't you? Series two, of Big mm, Boys. Yeah, yeah. I don't know if you saw this. I think if you'd have seen this particular bit being filmed, you oh. would have told me. <laughs> so, you, you you would have known about it. Yeah, like yeah. They sh- they shortchanged me when I went. Okay. Um. Yeah. So it was quite spectacular. Um. That clip. Uh. Channel Four right, is doing this show. So this is kind of slightly crossing over into news. Apologies, but. I haven't watched anything else apart from the things that I've been going to the TV festival, so I'm afraid it'll have to be in this section. Um, they've got this uh, show coming up, which is in which they put like half a dozen celebrities into a prison, that into a genuine prison that um, was kind of like stopped functioning a couple of years ago, uh, but hasn't yet been you know re reimagined as another kind of um, as turned a, into an HMV or anything like yeah, that. Yeah, right, exactly. It's still, it's still, it's prisonness is still there. They've put six famous people, including Tom Rosenthal, right? My friend Tom Rosenthal, the actor comedian from Plebs, um, Arsenal fan, fellow Arsenal fan. So like, not just any old celebrity. Ricky from EastEnders is in it, right? Anyway, they're placed in a prison with actual criminals, <laughs> convicted criminals. What? Yes. What? Yes. Yes. Channel Four, right? Channel it must Four. Be. Channel Four. <laughs> but but I have they, questions. I have yeah. questions. If it's Go no ahead. longer a prison, why are there prisoners there? So, for this format, it's, it's so, so, they, this. so the prisoners are literally saying, "Hey, do you want to be in a reality TV show?" And they're looking around, going, do "You yeah. know what? My schedule's pretty open at the moment. Sure, I can yeah. do that." And they get off to the fake prison. Yeah. So, th- so these criminals are still doing time. No, they're ex-convicts, so they've done time. Oh, fine, 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 fine. So not on day release; they're actually free at that point. I think so. Although it was slightly ambiguous on that point. To be fair, I'm not hundred percent sure. I-, I think they're on. Da- I don't think they're on day release. I think they're all ex-convicts who've been in prison. Oh right. And in this experiment, it's like a proper social experiment because there are proper guards. The guards are actual or current or ex-prison guards and the regime they impose is the actual regime that would have happened at this prison when it was a functioning prison a couple of years ago so lit- and what is the what is the experiment point is it that to see if the celebs don't get beaten up yeah and to see how how celebs <laughs> how these people cope with how the showering a, goes a prison regime honestly so they showed clips and they were, they have to go shower naked with these fellow ex-prisoners oh my god at one point right Someone, this is this was the most amazing moment of the clips again. At some point, someone's had a shit in the showers and oh. they showed it there. So yeah, this is no. not a, yeah, this is not a soft soaped like okay, fake. Can I ask a question? It's a <laughs> reality TV show where everyone has been brought in to take part in a reality TV show. Who under those auspices has decided to take a shit in the shower? Yes. James, sometimes yes. you've got to go, you've got to go. <laughs> yeah. Was it Ricky honest- from EastEnders? Be honest. <laughs> uh, we don't know. I-, I think it was one of the ex-prisoners. Who was- so, but- 
Who who was the perpetrator? Just had to get oh, that gag. Oh, very in. good. That's very, very good. good. That's I, very I good. hope to God it wasn't Tom Rosenthal, who, who yeah. I know and love. <laughs> it was a dirty um, protest. <laughs> yeah, it was a dirty protest. But honestly, it looked absolutely incredible from the clips what? they showed. Oh, the show. Right, okay, that makes yeah, sense. Yeah, the show, the show. Um, not the shit. Um, the shit show. It was literally the shit show. It was a shit show at the Fuck Factory. The shit show at the Fuck Factory. So, yeah, I was just absolutely, genuinely bowled over by um, that that new Factual Entertainment Commission from Channel wow. 4. Yeah. Um, what else? So I've seen a lot of Louis Theroux because Louis Theroux gave the um, centrepiece McTaggart lecture. So every year, you remember Michaela Cole did it a few years ago, and that's mm-hmm. where she talked about how her real-life sexual assault inspired her show. It was one of the most amazing uh, moments ever. Um, and this year, uh, Louis Theroux did it. And his theme was kind of risk-taking in TV and how the traditional channels have to carry on Taking risks, they can't. They've got to commission stuff that people makes people feel uneasy, and you know challenges their um, assumptions and all of that. And he was very good, very entertaining as well. And then this morning he was interviewed about it. So I basically I've spent a lot. I've spent a lot of Louis Theroux in the last couple of days. You um, lucky you, devil. Yeah. What have you been watching? Answer Louis Theroux, um, being <laughs> funny and clever and charming as ever. He, he was in really good form. Um, yeah. So uh, that kind of thing is what I've been watching at the festival. But it's, yeah, it's it's all going very well. <laughs> Apart from my, apart from my falling on, falling over when I ran from there to this hotel. Oh, such a sad, sad oh, story. Yeah, it, it is yeah. true. So we we made Boydie run back in between sort of panels, conferences, well, to do this podcast, and we wounded him. Yeah, I stacked it. I stacked you it did. properly. He fell yeah. over. I wish you know I could send you, you a, a whack-a-day plaster. You, uh, uh, honestly, <laughs> the, uh, you know when you have to style it out, when you when you stack it and um, in, in public, there's like a bus going by, you know. It's like my <laughs> first <laughs> thing was like, everyone on that bus has seen this twat fall over. <laughs> um, and like my phone, my, basically the phone fell out of my hand and the, I was carrying my laptop and everything and it all oh, fell over. No. It's all fine. So it could have been much, much worse. Yeah, hey, But you all... famously do not have a case on your famously. phone. Famously. Famously. <laughs> and you know what? You're right. And it's absolutely fine. My phone is absolutely, they're very, they're very rigorous these days. Uh, and yet I have a phone that does have a case and I cracked the screen when I dropped it. So I don't know what's going oh, on. Brilliant. <laughs> brilliant. <sighs> Yeah, not good. Anyway, Boyd's, made, Boyd's phone's made of gold, though, to is, be fair. We is, should clarify that. that. Boyd yeah. has a special limited edition diamond phone, which can <laughs> only be like cut by kryptonite or something. Uh, yes. Shall we get on to what we've been watching that isn't part of the Edinburgh TV conference? Kay, what have you been watching? I've been watching the And Just Like That finale. Oh, okay, oh it's finished. I no, but it. it's not the finale, though, is it? Because it's been renewed. Uh, yes. Well, oh, that was... Series you know, spoiler, spoiler for... Yeah, series finale. Spoiler for my news section, but Sorry. yes, it has been recommissioned. Um, and yes, look, so I watched the season finale, and as you know, I've been hate watching it all series. Um, I've been keep on watching it because I'm nostalgic for the characters, but also just like finding a lot of stuff wrong with it. But I have to say, I think they managed to pull it back in this final episode of the um, is it the second series? Because the choral characters, they sort of somehow managed to reclaim their identities and sense of self, you know, the qualities that we sort of love, loved about them, that they have seemingly forgotten and abandoned throughout the series. So I would say it was a good end. I think the Kim Cattrall cameo was good. Oh. Um, it didn't make me want to claw my eyes out. Can you, yeah. um, can we do a spoiler alert and um, tell me what happened? <laughs> With the I don't know. Is that bit. allowed, James? I see. This 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 feels like very very no, dodgy okay, territory. Oh, okay, God, I'm, I'm right. not going to spoil it. I'll tell you off pod. Okay, but I would say it was good. And what was smart is that they did it right at the beginning, so that you weren't just watching oh. it, waiting for it to happen. So first, 
like couple of minutes, it's happened, it's done, it's over, and then it's it all just focuses on this dinner party. Um, and yeah, I just I I really enjoyed it, and I thought I liked more about it than I hated, as per the other episodes, um, where I was just really quite damning about it. I, Steve is okay. I mean, I probably shouldn't go into more details because obviously this is I don't want to spoil it, but yeah. Overall, I was happy with how it went down. And the other thing I've been watching is The Lovers. So that is going to come on to Sky Atlantic on the 7th of September at nine o'clock. And I know we'll be reviewing it, so I won't say too much. But it is a funny, sexy, six-part rom-com um, written by David Ireland. And it stars Johnny Flynn and Roshin Gallagher. And I can't say whether I liked it or not. But I did binge all the episodes that were available to me. The only reason you can't say, I don't even know if it's embargoed, is so it won't ruin the when we review it, re- spoiler review it. Mm. But I, I, of course, watched it as well because I interviewed Johnny Flynn for this very podcast, which you'll you be hearing. You lucky devil. Yeah. Um, you'll be hearing that uh, next week or the week after, whatever. Yeah. But yeah, I won't say what I thought of after just because we don't want to spoil our eventual opinions when it comes to reviewing it with James on this podcast. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> But it's yes. an out-and-out full-on rom-com, so James will be up for okay. it. Okay, yes, psyched about that. Yeah, I think I think James is going to be excited to review it, yeah. What have I been watching? I've, I've also been watching a show that we will be reviewing in an upcoming episode. I've been watching The Killing Kind, which comes to Paramount mm-hmm. Plus in a few weeks. Uh, I've watched a few episodes of that, uh, mainly for an interview that I'm doing tomorrow morning. But we, um, I guess I can't really say much about what I thought of it for the same reasons, but it's about a barrister uh, played by Emma Appleton. And she has, should we say, an ex-client slash ex-boyfriend played by Colin Morgan. Uh, and he's a stalky creep show. Mm, okay. That sounds uh, intriguing. Yeah. But it's one of these things where I believe she defended him on a stalking charge and then started dating him. I mean, in terms of red flags, I'd say that's quite a big one. <laughs> blurred um, lines, blurred lines. Right, yeah. Uh, but there's all sorts of things. And there was a fire. And there's all sorts of... Uh, there certain things have happened. And so it plays out in certain flashbacks. You don't have the whole picture when you start the show. You kind of piece it together as you go along. So it's actually quite an interesting format. Uh, so I have been watching that. I have not yet watched the morning show. I didn't even know the screeners were available until Boydie mentioned it on the live show. Uh, but I might get onto that this weekend. I'm quite looking forward to that. Um, boy, did you get a chance to watch Ahsoka yet? No, no, I haven't. I, oh, the, lazy. I, I know. I, well, <laughs> partly because I can't work. I haven't got my access to my Disney Plus here in Edinburgh on this laptop. I'm sure I could have easily, but um, I haven't worked out how to do that because <laughs> I don't know what right. I'm doing. Yeah. Um, and I did watch, because I watched another Apple TV show, actually, that I know you just reminded me, um, which is The Changeling. Yes. Because I previewed that for Heat. And I think that is heavily embargoed, so I can't say what I thought of that. But I did. I've watched three episodes of The Changeling, um, which That's is the Keith, Keith Stanfield, Stanfield, isn't it? Yeah. yeah, yeah. And all I'll say about that is, uh, is wild, wild things. <laughs> yeah. So that's another show that I think we'll be doing next week or the week after. So yeah, I forgot about that. I watched quite a lot of that. So I haven't watched. I haven't watched that circuit, but I have watched The Changeling. You know what else I've been watching? Randomly, Friends. Oh my god! I what? This is like this is like back to the old days of when when Terry's answer every week was Friends. Yeah, I have been watching Friends. I don't know why, but it was on Netflix, and so I ended up jumping in, and I've been watching some bits of towards the it's end been of season on Netflix two. For years. I know, I know, but it just I don't know. Maybe the algorithm just spat it out at me, and I was like, all right, fine, whatever. So, and I've been watching a few of those, and I've realised that as you get towards the end of season two, beginning of season three, I've not watched them. So I've watched the first two seasons. I thought many, many times, but beyond that. 
I think I probably only watched them sort of once or twice each. So I was like, oh, actually, mm. I don't know these as well as I know a lot of them. So I got a bit swept up in the sort of unfamiliarity of it. And But what I was, the reason I mention it is because it astonishes me how little Friends has aged in the three decades since it aired. And the fact that, and I can't think of any other show really that this is true of, the fact that generations of teens and tweens are watching this now and discovering it for the first time. Oh, yeah. And it still feels like, like they don't look at it and think, oh, what's this old show? They love it. Like, it feels current, it feels fresh, it relates to them. I find it mad. Do you know what? So, like, my nieces got into it and um, they watched it all the time and then they got my mum into <laughs> it. So, every time I was around them, I had, like, I've genuinely got, like, this... PTSD from hearing the theme tune because they obsessively all three of them watch it together so it just appeals to everyone it does well, Ricky, Gervais, Ricky Gervais mentioned Friends in my interview with him last week on stage at the Pilot 250th uh, thing didn't he and um, I think I was got such he was, I think he claimed it quite I think he did anyway from, from memory <laughs> the whole thing's a blur but I think he was saying how it hasn't how it is pretty timeless yeah and hasn't yeah. dated because it is like gag a minute you know and the and the interrelationships the rom-com element is, yeah. works really well still yeah but I can't think of any other show that has that kind of cross-generational appeal in that way. Because even you go like to classic, like like because the nature of the show, like things like Star Trek don't age well because <laughs> not not from a quality point of view, but like if young people watch it today, it would just look so old and they'd just be like, I'm not watching this. Whereas I think Friends doesn't have that issue. I mean, obviously there are some fashion disasters in that. <laughs> yeah, but, but the nineties clothing is back. So it's That's like That's true. It's, That's true. You know, Although frankly it was it was early enough in the nineties that there's some eighties influence in there. It's Times, which is quite oh, upsetting. Fine, okay. um, but genuinely, I can't think of anything else that has that kind of cross-generational appeal, which is like, which feels fresh and relevant to what, three, four separate generations? It's mad. Absolutely mad. Mm. Anyway, Friends, yeah. that's no. what I'm watching. Yeah, yeah. Well, that, <laughs> I'm that, down that, with that the kids watching Friends. Better. Yeah, I haven't been watching anything, really. Possibly. The TV festival. Right, right. Let's move on to this week's first guest. I think you all know Ruth Wilson, definitely from the likes of The Affair, His Dark Materials, and of course, Lufa. Uh, but as you'll know from last week's show, she's on our screens at the moment in The Woman in the Wall on BBC One, in which she plays Lorna Brady, a woman with a, shall we say, troubled past and a pension for sleepwalking, who one day wakes up to find a dead body in her house. Now, Boydie sat down with Ruth the other week to find out more about it. I was at the screening this morning of The Woman in the Wall, and I think it's fair to say the whole audience was kind of struck dumb by the power of that opening episode. Mm. Um, the opening, I wanted to ask you about the opening scene, though, where your character, you'll wake up alone on a deserted country road, you're surrounded by cattle, you're in a white kind of nightdress, there's a blood stain on it, and that's the kind of scene where you think, oh, this is going to be a dream sequence. And I was fully prepared for the moment for you to wake up. But no, this actually has happened. You've ended up in this spot. It's a brilliant opening scene. Was that always the opening scene of the script? Or did was, was that result of some shuffling around? It was always the opening reality of Lorna. I think there was a play we played around with whether the show starts with a big sort of flashback of her life as young Lorna. I have a I can't really remember to be honest. It, we've mm. been through lots of different revolutions, and obviously, being inside the edit, you're always pushing different angles on it. But I always loved the script. I think the script initially opened with that. I think it did, and I always loved it because I think it sets the tone of the whole piece. It sets the tone for the audience. It goes, okay, this isn't what you expect it's going to be, and uh, this isn't just a straightforward drama. It's kind of unusual, more unusual than that. And be prepared to be slightly surprised as you go along the journey of it. Um, and it sets up Lorna in that brilliant way that she 
she sleepwalks and she does odd things. Um, but as you realize throughout the course of the show, you come to understand why, you know, where that's come from and why that, how that trauma manifests, but also why it exists in the first place. Yeah, because the show, really the, the kind of background to the whole story is the Magdalene Laundries, um, mm. which they've been, there's a documentary made about them, a film made about them, Magdalene Sisters, which is a great, powerful film. But mm. I thought it was interesting that your writer, Joe Murta, said that he wanted to publicise, if you like, the whole history, the whole of the Magdalene Orders, because so few people know what they were and what happened, that he did, he wanted to use the force of pop culture, if you like, this this show, this drama, to tell that story. Is that what appealed to you about it? Because it is in the end, it is that is how we learn about stuff, isn't it? I think the vast mass of the population via films and TV, etc. Yeah, I mean, he, he was saying, I mean, I didn't, how I knew about it, and I didn't know much about it, but what I did know was through Philomena, the Magdalene sisters, uh, I'd heard about, I remember when Toom was on the radio and on the news, a few years ago when they discovered all the remains of um, his babies in tomb. But I that's my extent of knowledge. And but you do learn through drama. That's I mean, that's why it's such a joy I'm in such a joyous, wonderful, creative world where you can tell stories that are important through either fictional stories of that are inspired by truth. And I think that's how you get things out to a wider audience. You you can educate and entertain at the same point. And that's exactly what I think Joe wanted to do with this. And why it appealed to me was like, I thought, wow, when I first read it, I thought this is swimming on something really fascinating, not just the story itself, but also it's getting under the skin of that psychological horror, you know, how that manifests, how it can feel like a horror film or a horror story for those people that went through it, how, you know, she is literally haunted by her past. And trying to deny it or trying to ignore it, but it catches up with her, and it's all erupts from this note that lands on her doorstep, and um, and it gets to a point where it gets so extreme, and she can't. She decides she can't sleep anymore, you know. But by not sleeping, she's gonna go even more mad. So I think mm. that was a really fascinating premise for me. And at, but at the same point, we're dealing with something very truthful and horrifying, and. You know, that's something that needs a story that needs to be told. People do need to know more about this. And we hope that people will learn about it. They'll, under the guise of they'll watch a crime thriller, but actually what they're learning about by the end of it is something much more horrifying than that. And hopefully it will encourage them to go and dig and read about it and learn even more. I'm sure it will. Yeah. As you mm. say, it, it is a horror story, isn't it? And it's, and I love the fact that it's, it's something, always it's out on that horror. It is, feels like an out on that horror film in some ways, which, you know, I felt there was like Hitchcock and mm-hmm. Brian De Palma and David Fincher in there. There's a lot, it feels like a bit seven esque, the, the look of it sometimes. A bit Lynch. A bit Lynch, exactly. <laughs> I mean, Throw Lynch in. Why throw not? Lynch in. Why not? You know, mix it all up. When you watch a bit of Ken Loach, you know. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Right. Gritty scenes, social, you know? gritty social yeah. realism when you need it. Yeah. Exactly. Um, but did you, when you watched it back, had you, I don't know how many, you're exec producer as well, so you, yeah. you may have seen it back a lot, but it does look fantastic as well. And it has yeah. got that, it's drenched in those horror movie kind of visuals, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, it was all, obviously, it looks cinematic. They wanted filmmakers to be involved in shooting this. And so Harry Wootliffe came on board and Ratchana Suri. And obviously I've worked with Harry before on True Things. Um, but what I love about her style and what she does with the piece is she, she cares Um she cares about the truth of every intimate moment. She, you know, she looks for the intimate relationship with those characters at the heart of it. And so 
what her style does actually it lends itself to the psychological horror it becomes you as an audience become intimately involved with Lorna and so you're inside her experience and that is quite unusual you you might be inside the mind of a killer you know and that's mm. that's in the first episode you're like oh my god you know, for an audience that's really interesting um but it means that you can you're empathizing you're attached to them and you follow their story throughout all the weird genre bits they do or, you know if it's going through genre you're held emotionally um, what do you, and your character Lorna she's extraordinary yeah. and i'm going to say so this may sound crass but i i fully believe it, it really reminded me of Sinead O'Connor uh, that. Do you know oh, what I mean? that's like, amazing yeah, yeah. just uh, even with or without the timing of her of a tragic death yes. i just thought that she's t- kind of sh- just doing what the fuck she wants to do yes. she gives two fingers at the beginning to the locals yes. who are shouting out uh, obviously the irish thing as well was did you have a way into the character was the accent key getting the accent right getting her look yeah. right getting the way she walks and talks right yeah i mean there was um a few inspirations for it in terms of accent i you know i'm always looking for idiosyncratic things really things that are very particular to individual rather than a sort of generic sound so i found some voices that i really for some reason responded to one was cora staunton who was a ga player out in the west of ireland and uh, a brilliant ga player female gmac ga player and um i loved her quality of her voice it's it's not a typical it is typically irish but it sort of felt unique to me so i used her as inspiration plus there's actually a, a woman on set called um Christina, who was from Mayo, from Galway, um, and had a beautiful accent, again, quite similar to Cora's. So it was a combination of those two voices. And uh, so Christina, I got to record all my my lines. And every time I saw her on set, I was like, ah, we're from the same place. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But it was cool for me, you know, to get underneath that and make Lorna very unique in every way. In terms of things like, um, then in terms of building the character, I mean, actually, Patricia Highsmith was <laughs> actually someone I use. As a, I mean, if you dig into her, she is yeah. quite wild. Wow. And I was thinking, why is she that wild? What is it? And she's considered an outsider. She's provocative. She sort of leaned in to the idea of being mad. Like, if you're going to call me mad, well, yeah, I'll just act mad then. But it gives you a slight freedom. Yeah. Um, and I thought that's really interesting for Lorna. I can have a bit of freedom and push the boundaries. Um, and have fun actually in elements because, yeah, what have you got to lose if you're considered an outsider or an oddball by the community and kept being referred to as that? Then fuck them. All right. I am. And I thought that's actually, there's a bit of power and strength in that. And, um, and like interesting to say about Sinead O'Connor because someone brought that up, brought her up the other day, today as well. And I think, you know, we denied her, lots of people denied her story or called her mad, called her. Under, undermined her experience by calling her mad and putting her in a box. And I think it's, you know, Lorna, no wonder she's has mental health issues. You know, she age 16, she was sent away and made to feel shame about something that was very natural and forevermore then silenced or told she was mad for expressing these stories. So that trauma has been repressed and pushed down and society has done it as well as herself. And so I think yeah, no shit she's mad and no shit she's going to go out and <laughs> rail against the machine. And I I think that's what makes her very courageous. And her journey, she becomes more confident as the show goes on mm. in that journey, actually, and that strength of voice. She does has she sleepwalks, I mean, basically, which is the key yeah. element of the of the whole of the whole story. Did you research that much? Did you kind of yes. go into how you're gonna do it? I do the sleepwalking. 
it's funny because I hadn't really thought about the sleepwalking until probably a, you know a week before we shot it, and I was like, oh god, how am I actually going to do this? I don't I haven't thought about this, and and then I thought, um, okay, sleepwalking like the traditional just zombie slowly walking towards something with a axe you know that was like okay that looks a bit boring seen that before she does have an axe yeah that's quite <laughs> she does have an axe she's got an axe, yes, axe. i'm not sure that's she different. should have access to an axe but <laughs> yeah. she does yeah oh she does yeah so yes. she's got all those of power tools um yeah. but <laughs> i thought uh i don't know i've seen that before but i i thought just doing it slowly walking felt a bit boring to me and then i thought, okay let me just look up see sleepwalking and i started doing some research and I found some brilliant videos online of people that film themselves sleepwalking. And it's, I, I was like, oh my God, this is uh, mad and quite funny. And I mean, and horrifying for them sometimes. But this one woman, she records herself and she walks like a grown baby. Like she kind of waddles around. She, she like shoves things down her pants. She's talking to herself. She's reenacting what's going on in her nightmare or, her, you know, dream. And she'll be up like, standing next to a plant, talking to a plant, you know, all sorts of weird stuff. And it's hilarious. I thought, okay, we're going down this route, I think. And so I thought of a walk that you don't quite know how you're walking. So you're sort of like, you know, like this. And then it lends itself a bit clockwork orange. Suddenly, <laughs> suddenly it feels a bit. Yeah. So there was a sort of dark humour to that, which I found was really fun, actually, and which I think this piece needs. It needs elements of that so that the, you know, you can go to the, this really hard emotional uh moving stuff as well um so you know and harry herself as well has her uh, husband sleepwalks so she was describing how he is um so yeah we've put together we found this kind of mad wow. that's, a, of it. that's a stroke of good luck for you possibly not for for, for harry's husband no, no exactly <laughs> yeah. but it was interesting the way we were pushing the boundaries of stuff mm. like there's a scene in episode two which is a scene with all the women and it's all the women tell stories of their what happened to them in those mother and baby homes. And Lorna's on the outskirts. She doesn't want to want to get involved. She's sort of not part of that community, refuses to be so. But she finds herself by the end of the scene expressing or telling her story. And I always thought that's too easy, you know, for her to suddenly just say that I don't think that would be as easy for her. So Harry and I were working out how could we do this in a slightly idiosyncratic way for Lorna, that it comes out of a memory she's having. So she thinks that she's just having this memory to herself and she's slightly talking to herself and then realises that she's speaking out loud and everyone can hear her. And suddenly she's told them, or she somehow manifested a story and she didn't realise she was talking loudly. Mm. So I think it was always that play of like her idea of reality and and the past and... um what's happening in real time and what's in her sleep and it all becomes very muddled for her and we should mention darren mccormack because he's kind of mm. the, the story really is kind of split into two at least and mm -hmm. they, they come together his his storyline running parallel mm -hmm. to yours was he was the role written for him because he seems so it seems so perfect for him that you know it feels like it must have been written especially for him but yeah i mean i don't know to be a no, okay. for him to be honest um but yeah as soon as he it was offered out to him and he said yes it's perfect 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 uh casting and he's brilliant in it and also again he's like a you know he's set up as the outsider who's coming in to investigate this crime and it's set up that he's after Lorna he's going to be sort of chasing Lorna down um but you realize that he has a direct relationship with the person that's been killed and so 
that you, as the show goes on again, you sort of see his connection to the mother and baby homes and the two of them become actually, they are each other's missing piece. You know, you'll see them, their relationship change over the course of the show, but he was brilliant to work with. And it was, I mean, it was really lovely. As I say, the later scenes, we get sort of more to play with each other. Yeah, you can see your whole that 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 is holding off almost bringing the two of you together. Look, yeah, I love that kind of yeah, yeah. kind of delayed delayed gratification. Yeah. Um, as as exec producer, what to, so obviously that can mean lots of different things. Yes. Um, what did it mean for you? Like, were you involved at every stage of the process, the casting, and all of that? And yeah, I mean, I was. The script came to me originally as a pilot two years ago or something. So it was uh, first draft version of it or how many drafts they're done and they needed someone to attach to help get it made and at that stage I, I thought wow it's amazing and it's got so much potential I don't know where it's going I've got no idea what it is but I think it's worth getting money to like push further on this and see where it is I didn't know at that stage if I was definitely going to be in it but I loved the character of Lorna I, I, and it sat with me I kept going God, the character's so wild and wonderful so it kept it sat with me and I couldn't let go of her really and then so Eventually, we got to developing the story and the scripts, and yeah, I've been very much involved. I mean, the process because it's such a mishmash and it's so unique, it did require kind of constantly um, tussling with it, everyone tussling with it, and making sure that we are holding on to the integrity of those women's stories at the centre of it and remaining sensitive to that. So, the whole writing of it, filming it, editing it, all of that has been constant. So I've been involved in all of it and it's been hard, but actually really creative as well. Uh, we're still doing five and six. I mean, we've finished ah, the edit, but we're still in right. the grade and the mix of that. Right. Um, I, was, I was going to ask you about the music because... Um, isn't it great? Fantastic. Um, David Holmes working on the soundtrack and the choice of music. I love the scene, the bar scene, the key bar scene in episode one mm. has Cocteau Twins, Ikea mm -hmm. Guinea going mm -hmm. on. Did you, did, did you, were you aware of that song? Did Were you aware of No. Oh, <laughs> I mean, it works so brilliantly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I mean, look, I leave the music up to other people. That's not my speciality. Right. But he had written pretty much 90% of the music based on the first episode. So he's amazing, David. You just send him off and he goes and writes a kind of soundtrack to the whole show. But, you know, what I think his music does is holds holds the show and all those different genres, uh, but allows space and silence for the moments that you need it to. But he it holds it. It gives it real drive and energy and it gives a fun quality, but darkness as well. I mean, he's brilliant, absolutely brilliant. And, you know, we, you experiment with taking sometimes taking it out. And you go, I don't know, put it back in. Right. <laughs> it's yeah. so much better. So I just think it really helped hold Lorna actually as well. And she doesn't speak a lot of that first episode. Right. So there's yeah. very little language. Yeah. And actually telling that story of inside her head and what she's doing, you know, his music really helps sort of, enhance that um so thank god for david he's brilliant i mean he's sending me little sections he's done and we have a very special thing at the very end which is very very special and moving oh it's, yeah it's extraordinary the, the music um there's loads of things i could ask you about um films and tv stuff but i wanted to ask I, the, the real thing i've been wanting to ask you about ever since it happened was the second woman the 24-hour oh. play that you were <laughs> yeah. in i yes. mean absolutely extraordinary yeah what i just need to know what was the most challenging aspect of that whole thing of doing a 24-hour play uh, uh, the most with hundred different scenes with hundred different people? I never found I never find the scene boring. That wasn't a problem right. for me. Like it never is because every person that comes on surprises you somehow. You know, there's a. I, I think the hardest bit was 
obviously the fatigue, which was over the course of, I mean, from 6am to 11am, I really hit a wall and I was double vision. I was slurring my words. I was moving very slowly. And uh, I was, there was times like, I don't know if I can get through this, but every time I turned around to another guy, they gave me energy and I just clinged onto them for dear life, you know, and literally. But I think what also got me through is it was really fun. It was really playful. And I have so much love and respect for every person that came onto that stage with me and every person that stayed up all night queuing and watching because it it felt very human and it felt very like it. I came out loving theatre, loving people, <laughs> um, loving community. You know, I was just filled of love and gratitude for the whole event. And um and it was like the playfulness of acting, you know, it's like, how do you real response to real people? You know, it's every scene will feel different because they're essentially, we are all different. And also I became a very mad clown in it. I was like, my little clown, naughty clown came out. Yeah. Full force. Yeah. So I went to slapstick humor, which I haven't done much of in my career. It was brilliant. Physical slapstick humor was yeah. my play, my safe place to go to when I'm tired, <laughs> which was Fair like enough. a surprise. Yeah. Yeah, Slapstick's brilliant. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, congratulations on uh, The Woman Door. It's, it's a, absolutely unique. I've never seen anything like it. I think it's so fantastic. Um, Great. So, yeah. Thank you very much for joining us. Cheers. Thank, thank you. you so much. That was Boydie and Ruth Wilson. Time now, I think, for a listener question. Um, shall we see? Now, I did send one to you earlier today that I in no way pulled out of the post bag in a hurry. This week's question comes from Michael Gordon. And Michael says, love the pod. Thank you. Uh, I would love to know what your favourite single season of television is. Doesn't have to be your favourite overall show, but that single season that stands above all. You and my fellow listeners likely don't care, but my choice is either the second season of The Leftovers or the fourth season of Dexter. Thanks. Uh, Those are both actually pretty good choices, I would say. Yeah, the second season those. of Dexter, absolutely, well, 100%. Full season of Dexter, second season of Leftovers, but yes. I'm uh, sorry, second season of Leftovers. Yeah, so I was going to say. say. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, second season of Leftovers sorry. is mad because it takes Tom Protter's book and goes in a different direction and becomes, if it were even possible, more engaging and more captivating than the first season. It's incredible. Yeah. And the fourth season of Dexter is, I believe, the Trinity Killer. I think that's the um, Sir John Lithgow season. Even though you gave me... Um you gave us warning of, of at least 10 minutes. I have struggled <laughs> to think of an answer for this one. Like genuinely, I mean, obviously I've watched a lot of TV. I couldn't think of a, like the way I then had to break it down just to give a answer is that like whose writing is phenomenal that would have produced a perfect series. And so on that basis alone, um, the last season of Happy Valley, but is that the best single series of TV I've ever watched. Well, your favourite more than the best. I always think favourite is more interesting. Like, what one do you like the most as opposed to which one do you think is objectively the best? Uh, you don't have a particular preference. Mm. Okay, my, my answer is very predictable. I think I've said it before. Um, but, but it's the No, it's Seinfeld. It's Seinfeld season four, which is the season in which... Um, Jerry and George are commissioned to write a sitcom for NBC. And so it's they 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 the the kind of arc of the whole season is about coming writing and and making this pilot about Seinfeld called Jerry. <laughs> and it's like the most and it's when the show turned into, you know, this was the biggest show on TV in America at that point. And um it became like an incredibly self-referential, clever kind of look at itself. 
and the the show within the show called Jerry has actors cast as the main characters in the show, if you see what I mean. So there's a version of Elaine, there's a version of Jerry, there's a version of George and Kramer. And the version of Kramer is hilarious. Anyway, it's just an incredibly bold... I mean, that, this is talking like in the mid-90s, right? And now, of course, every show on TV is self-referential and postmodern and, you know, all of that. But that didn't happen back then, you know. So it was genuinely groundbreaking and hilarious and sophisticated and just ev- that, you know, and you know, a 23, 24 episode season of the biggest show on TV on NBC primetime. And it, it, it was all about itself. And it was fantastic. Uh, yeah. So it's, that is the answer. Season four of Seinfeld. That is, that is Boyd's <laughs> definitive answer. Uh, I, I don't have a definitive one that I would say in terms of a favorite season. Like, you know, like, like the West Wing, like, I love every season of the West Wing, even after Sorkin departs. I mean, season two, arguably the best one, I would say. Uh, but I don't think that would be my answer to this question. Uh, the best season of Blackadder is four, but my favourite is two because I think it's it, it's it's the transition when he goes from you know Edmund, the kind of like sort of like Weasley wormy character, to the very sardonic and cutting blackadder character uh and so i really i have a real soft spot for for series two of blackadder um 40 towers i kind of see both of those series just blend together for me i can't really you know, i wouldn't say one is better than the other i think they're all all the episodes are just gold so i wouldn't uh necessarily say that but game of thrones season four i think is probably the high point of that show which is the purple wedding Tyrion's trial all that stuff um that's a really i mean again some loads of great seasons in that but i think that one is when it's firing in every conceivable cylinder um we mentioned fringe briefly early on slightly out of context but i will say season three of fringe was incredible when they really lean into the you're both going to look at me blankly here but they lean into the kind of cross-dimensional drama so okay just to sort of give you some fringe started off as a kind of budget x files so i had joshua mm-hmm. jackson so now you're interested <gasps> I thought so. yes joshua yeah. jackson Do you know, i was literally just there you that. Go. Was joshua jackson in yeah there. and anna torv was in it but the idea was that it started and Leonard Nimoy came in as this character who kind of you haven't seen but it split off in that there was an alternate universe uh, so with alternate versions of themselves so you had so Olivia there was faux Olivia was the alternate one and Walter had Walternate I mean the punning alone was god level but it got to the point there you'd have episodes that would flip between the two dimensions and so you'd know which dimension it was depending on the colour of the title sequence and when it really got into that it went from episode of the week type X-Files ripoff to this very serialised very fascinating very layered science fiction show so that was really really good uh, I loved that um, the Wire, everyone loves season four. Season three is my favourite of The Wire. I think that's fantastic. Uh, that's a brilliant, brilliant season of television. Uh, and the other things I randomly wrote down in a kind of fever dream, not for any particular reason, were Prison Break season one. And not because it's the best season of television I've ever seen, but because that season had, I would argue, the most promise of any new show I'd seen, where it seemed so tightly conceived and brilliantly executed. Who knew that it would absolutely screw the pooch in season two and then forever after because of course if you have a show called prison break and you get out of prison you don't have a show um but that was genius as well and of course fleabag season two yeah oh, yeah that's a good yeah. shout it's a good shout yeah um but the leftover season two to, to just to reiterate mm. that would definitely be very high in my and Agreed. of course the oa yeah. season two and indeed the oa season one <laughs> and indeed the oa season one so the oa yeah. is difficult because i don't know that i could pick a favorite those two seasons are very different but they're both genius yeah i think and just I, two the end, is more ambitious e- yeah, just because the ending of two. Yeah. 
the the most audacious ending in TV history. Just when things me. jump out, like Breaking Bad, the final season, I think is probably the best of that because it, a it has all the best episodes, but b yeah. it's the culmination of the arc, which works really well. People think Sopranos, the second season, is the best. That's often heralded as the best Soprano season. Yeah, I think yeah, it's I probably true, but I'd need to do a rewatch to say for sure. Um, but yeah, like like I I I do. You know, there are certain seasons of shows like these. That I think you know where all of the stars align and all the things that make that show great just just work in a very specific way. Dexter season four is definitely one of those. I think. Line of Duty, the season when yes. Doc got revealed. Yes. That was a good season. Did that is that the one that ends with um with uh with Vicky running around out. with a machine gun. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah, that is one yeah, that's a very good It's very incredible. Good yeah. Absolutely incredible. Is yeah. that, that's the, the exit, exit one, isn't it? Exit required. Yeah, yeah exit. exit. Yeah. 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 And it's yeah. like it's like, oh my yeah. god, it turns into twenty four. It's wild. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 That was an amazing season, yeah. It is very, sure. very good. So much good stuff, so much good stuff. Uh, if you would like your question addressed on the Pilot TV podcast, do send them over to us on Instagram, direct message to at Pilot TV pod, uh, to, I'm not going to say X, on Twitter, at Pilot TV pod, uh, or you can send to me directly at James C. Dyer, but only on Instagram. Uh, and feel free to send us voice notes if you like. Uh, we're, we're not opposed to those as well. Shall we have some news? What has been happening in the world of TV news, guys? So, well, Boyd will have loads, so I'm just going to get mine done. So, obviously, as we've discussed, and just like that, it's been renewed for Series 3. Unfortunately. Which actually, no, but you know what? Now that they've, like, lured me back in with that last episode being half decent, I'm like, mm, okay, I can do yeah, another Half season. decent, that's where the bar is. <laughs> <laughs> no, but it really was. It sort of, like, really drew me back in, considering how um, rubbish the other episodes have been. So, also, I'm, I possibly, out of all of us, was the only one who was invested in the Gilded Age. You were, um, yes. But... American Downton. (laughs) Yeah. They've announced that season two is going to launch on the 29th of October. So I'm pleased about that. I do love a period drama. And then, okay, this is a bit um, left field, but Amazon Prime video original series, um, Bombay, My Beloved, will be dropping in September. And obviously I'm going to love that, A, because it's foreign drama. B, it's set in India. C, it's set where my family from, Bombay. So I'll be watching that on behalf of all of us to tell you what it's like. Yeah, there are a lot... Very good. There are lots of announcements being made uh, every day at the Edinburgh TV Festival. It's when the channels like to uh, announce new commissions and stuff. This is one. Disney Plus announced a new UK original series called Playdate. And um, it's going to be a gripping five-part psychological drama adapted from Alex Dahl's best-selling novel. Have you heard of that novel? Okay. Mm, no. No. Uh, anyway, the, the, the cast is properly impressive. Denise Goff, who, as I said, I think on the live show, doesn't do any old shit. Very Mm. uh, classic. um, (laughs) You you should be her agent. Yeah. Denise Goff. um, James's favourite, Holiday Granger. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, look at that big smile on his face. Yeah, a little grin, a little grin on James's (laughs) face. And Beacon Mod, who was the absolute superstar of This Is Going To Hurt. Yeah. Yeah, she's ace. Plus Jim Sturgis, Brona War. All in this um, Ooh, ensemble, yeah, very good lineup ensemble um, show. Yeah, it's very exciting. So that's one uh, new thing. Sky uh, announced a load of new things, and that w- one of the things that Sky announced is that the Tattooist of um, Auschwitz, which is a forthcoming um, drama, very kind of prestigious, um, heavyweight, international, global production thing, they announced kind of details of that the news they revealed about the tattooist of Auschwitz is that Hans Zimmer is doing the score 
Oh, and I wow. Thought, yeah, they make it. I mean, that is a good bit of news. That is a good revelation that Hans Zimmer and Cara Talv together, they are scoring The Tattooist of Auschwitz, which is a very interesting, um, which is also based on a massive best-selling novel. Um, did you, you read that novel? Kay's nodding. You read, did you read that novel? I'm just testing you. Because <laughs> Kay, Kay, if people don't know, Kay is the Heat Books editor. So, you know, Kay has to read everything. Mm, well, not everything, but yeah. Okay. Um, other Sky announcements. Funny Woman. Remember Funny Woman, uh, which was the yes, yeah. yeah. Uh, Nick Hornby period drama. P- well, yeah, well, yeah, yeah. It was period drama. A fairly recent period, but period drama. Yeah, about uh, Gemma Arterton um, as the um, comedy actress. Uh, that's back for a second season. I was slightly surprised about in a way because, but you know, it's good news. Um, uh, <laughs> Sounds like you're happy about it, boy. No, I liked it. I really liked it, but I didn't know it was like a big enough hit for them to uh, to warrant a second season. But it clearly has. So, I liked it. Yeah. Uh, no, that is good. Yeah. Boydie, I, I feel like you've buried the lead a little bit. Oh, go on. I'm sure I have. You're right. Yeah. Like the the, the most Boydie news of all Boydie news mm-hmm. broke last week and you haven't mentioned yes. it. Oh, God. What is it? What? That Frasier has oh, an air date. Do you know what? Yes. Do you know what? That happened so long ago, didn't it? That in, in the, in the um, recording cycle. And also the first... the first pictures of Nicholas Lindhurst on set. Of course, you're absolutely right. The first pictures of Nicky Lindhurst on set of Frasier playing a character who looks like, as I, I'm not the only person who observed this, but straight up lost to the summer wine. Um, <laughs> he's like, he, do, he has big compo energy, doesn't yeah, he? <laughs> yeah, he's big compo energy. Um, but apparently, yeah, so he's like a academic colleague of Frasier's or something. Frasier's now a lecturer, I think, something maybe. Is that right? Did I read that right? And um, so I think people are speculating that he's basically the Niles role, like the foil to Frasier, because Niles, as we don't think he's in it, it certainly hasn't been announced that he's in it at all. Um, uh, but Niles' son is. So, now, he, so Frasier's nephew is a character in it, a young guy. He was pictured in those pictures, first look pictures. Um, but Nicky Lindhurst, yeah, playing some kind of bedraggled, compo-like academic who is presumably nearly, if not more, pompous than Frasier. I've slightly made that up myself. But yeah, it's... I'm absolutely fascinated. This is your, I mean, to completely bearing the lead. Yeah, this is the most intriguing new, in quotes, revival of a show in living memory. I'm worried about it. Of course, I'm, so I'm worried about, about it. it. It's absolutely, but my thing, I always think, you know, the, the original phrase is still there, repeated every day on Channel 4, and I've got the box set of the whole thing. So it's fine. It's not going to ruin. It never ruins the original thing for me, whatever whatever they do. Even if you it's say abs- that. No, it doesn't. It doesn't. Well, how could it? Because it's still still there. It's fine. It sullies it. It can sully uh, not things. Not for me. Uh, I'm, not, I'm a non-sully theorist. It doesn't, <laughs> it doesn't sully things for me. Uh, but when, when is the uh, premiere date? We have got to, did you say? Uh, I did not say. I believe it is the... Th- I think it airs on the 12th of October in the US on Paramount Plus. Uh, and I think it uh, it airs on the, the day after, on the 13th here in the UK. And then if you're in the US and you don't happen to have uh, Paramount Plus, then you can watch it on CBS on the 17th of October. Yes, yes. I mean, absolutely intriguing. I cannot wait to um, see what it's like. You'd think, I think my guess is it's going to be fine because I think Fraser is such a strong character and such a well-defined character that as soon as he's back, you know, being his pompous self, um, it, it that's fine. And then, you know, they've got a decent enough writer's room of experienced, you know, half-hour American sitcom people to not make it a complete mess disaster. So I, I think it would almost be, yeah, I, th- I think it would be fine at the very least. And, and you know, it may be much better than fine. 
okay, you're looking as What if, I'm hearing from you is you're, you're saying it's impossible to ruin. No, I'm not saying that. I'm saying it's impossible to ruin what's already existing. I'm saying it's quite possible yeah. that it might be shit, it might be terrible, but I feel it's quite unlikely it will be that terrible. Yeah. yeah, let's hope for the best. Yeah. So New I'm, things cannot ruin old things. Sorry, buddy, I've got, I've got George Lucas on the other line. He'd like to speak to you. <laughs> uh, I have a bit of news for you uh, that you won't care about, and that's the much-vaunted Fallout TV show. Uh, I do know how much you love retro-future aesthetic, Boydie, uh, yeah. but that will be coming in 2024. It takes place in Vault 33, which is an underground vault in Los Angeles. Uh, so wow. that's exciting. And this is from Lisa Joy and Jonathan Nolan, based on the video game series of the same name, which you will be unsurprised to hear I have played at length. So pretty psyched about that. Is that over news? Are we done with news? Um, I mean, there's probably loads more, but I, I can't find it news. on my... Yeah, I think we've done enough. Yeah. <laughs> Fine. Okay. Also, we need to move on this week. We're in a rush. So let's skip ahead. Let's put news behind us. And let's get on to this week's main event, which is, of course, our second <laughs> guest, Jonathan Tropper. <laughs> Jonathan Tropper is, of course, the creator of HBO's Warrior, which returns to Sky this week. Uh, but not only that, he's also the creator of Actual Banshee and took over as showrunner of my beloved C in season two. Uh, as you can imagine, I caught up with him recently to talk about, well, Warriors Return. But let's be honest, mainly to just geek out about all the shows I'm slightly obsessed with. It was glorious. I loved it. This is what happened. Well, Jonathan, thank you very much for your time and welcome to the Pilot TV podcast. Uh, I am a huge fan of your work, which will become apparent as we go along. But the first thing I want to say was, it's very exciting to have Warrior back on our screens because it felt for a very long time like this was never going to happen, right? Yeah, we, we. it's weird because technically it wasn't supposed to happen. And weirdly, though, because we all stayed in touch so much through the pandemic and through through you know everything that followed and because justin shannon and i kept talking about strategically how to get it back it also sort of felt like we never really believed it wouldn't come back but of course you know we were very naive and we just happened you know even a stop clock is right twice a day right we we we, we got very lucky but yes it's it's uh it's, it was very surreal to make another season so how long was the actual period of time between thinking you were done and then HBO changing their minds. Like, did you still have all the sets? Was everyone still no, under contract? Everything, everything was gone. Wow. It was, uh, there were at least two years where we were just dead in the water. Um, now, part of that, everyone was dead in the water yeah. with the pandemic. True. So, so time is kind of funny. But um, no, we everyone was trying to move on to other things. And I think the one thing that the pandemic served for us was that we didn't lose all the actors to other shows. It sort of slowed the industry down for five or six months. And uh, people were still gettable. No, I mean, it's amazing. And everyone seems so committed to the show, even on social media. Kieran Bue was like hammering it really, really hard when he thought that it wasn't going to come out of season three, bless him. Well, you know, we were all really heartbroken when Cinemax went out of business because, I mean, we've lived now through two HBO mergers, right? AT&T and then Discovery. Uh, and both of them have had negative effects on the show. And, um, and so... You know, we, we put our heart and soul into this thing and it feels like we're making something that's really greater than the sum of its parts. And, you know, if Cinemax had stayed in business, we'd have kept making it for Cinemax because I think we were their most watched show and there was nothing and we were doing everything right. So it felt very unjust that we were just had no way to continue to make the show. Because they did, originally didn't move it over to HBO Max, did they? There was a period where it wasn't available. Right. So, yeah, because Cinemax went out of business, unless you were one of the however many people who subscribed to Cinemax, there was no way to even access the first two seasons. And 
So I began calling HBO Max, who I didn't know anyone at HBO Max, but I just started calling the bosses. They're saying, hey, you know, because I, I I had another ex grind. My show Banshee was on the Cinemax platform too. And so, you know, seven years of my work between the two shows was going to just disappear into oblivion. And I just wanted them to pull the shows from Cinemax. I, I couldn't understand why they wouldn't take this great stuff they owned and put it on the HBO Max platform. And so I began calling and talking to people and sending emails and then you know, luckily some journalists took up the cause and I think that added to the noise so that HBO Max moved um, Warrior onto the platform. And then to nobody's great surprise, it did really well. And that's we they, they reached out to me to see if we could keep making it. Which yeah. is amazing. I mean, look, I've loved this show from the absolute start because it's like it's part historical drama, it's part brawling western, it's part Hong Kong action movie. Like it has all of this sort of baked into it. I mean, how much of that was the style that Justin Lin and Shannon Lee were looking for? How much of that did you bring to this project? So I honestly, it's hard for me to to know what their conversations were like before they brought me in. I will say once I came in and started talking about it, we all seemed to want the same thing, which was, you know, and, and you know, I think the thing we were all looking at is like, you know, had Bruce Lee's career not been cut off by his untimely death, what was he looking to do? And, and the feeling was he loved Westerns. Um, he was very focused in his treatment for Assam, you know, which was his, what he originally called the warrior, um, on this time period in Chinese American history. So he obviously knew a lot about the Tong Wars and about the systemic racism that was going on at that time period and the immigrant experience. Um, and so we, we took all that and, and we wanted, you know, and, and one thing Justin really wanted to do was to subvert a lot of the tropes of both, you know, Hong Kong. Uh, Gung Fu theater and the representation of Asian Americans, uh, Asians on America in American cinema. And so we wanted to sort of address both of those things at the same time. And that led us down this road of a sort of Tarantino-esque, you know, slightly pulpy historical drama. And, and you know, the tone just found itself. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's, it's great because it's like, it's a, it's a show about America's very I think fair to say complicated relationship with immigration and intolerance without also being explicitly about that. Like it feels like you walk the line by being honest without being preachy. Yeah. And and that sources from a number of places. First of all, if you look at what Bruce Lee did, that was really what Bruce, Bruce Lee's Bruce Lee was, was trying to impart a really profound philosophy, but he knew he had to be entertaining to do it. And so, you know, you always get the sense when you're watching a Bruce Lee movie that he's kind of winking at the camera. Like, we're going to make this funny and we're going to make this fun and we're going to make it exciting. But but there's a real message here. And and so for us, you know, nobody wants to make message TV, right? But, um, you know, we wanted to really tell an untold story, which is, which is, you know, the immigration story of the United States in general and specific to the Chinese American immigration, how... You know, the, you know, the Chinese American immigration didn't start because they all just came here. They were invited. You know, they were, they were invited by businessmen who wanted help mining for gold. And they were, they were sold a very false story of how rich they would get coming. And then they came and they were basically indentured servants. And, and, you know, sort of the way this country in general has a really, you know, complicated relationship with the people who build the country, right? Um, over and over again, like we're telling a story in 1878 that's going on today. Um, so, you know, I think it was all, I think that was a largely intentional and in why Bruce Lee chose this period. But obviously you've done three seasons of this. And I remember when you were talking about season two, you were saying that this was your, this was your Empire Strikes Back, right? Like it was the Empire Strikes Back, the season one Star Wars. Does that make this your Return of the Jedi? No, because... Um, 
we're not looking, you know, we're hopefully not looking at it as a trilogy. And, um, and we have not certainly, you know, these 10 episodes, which I think came out great, um, do not resolve our story. So our hope is to get, you know, at least one more season and whatever's going to be our last season. The best thing would be is that if we could go into it, knowing it's our last season and right to that. This, I think, is actually even a little bit uh, darker than season two. Um, but, you know, we always make sure to, to continue to have, you know, that you know, it's, it, it gets darker and it gets more complicated, but we keep it entertaining. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I've, I've been lucky enough to see all 10 episodes. It's very exciting. Uh, I, I will say this one feels like, because obviously the last season we have the riot uh, in Chinatown. So it all kicks off from there. This one almost feels like the aftermath of an explosion where things are kind of still standing, but they aftershocks mean they're about to kind of start falling apart. Yeah, I think the end of, of season two sort of reset the board in a number of ways. And you're watching, you know, all the characters, you know, kind of adjusting to a slightly different reality. Um, and, yeah, still still pursuing their objectives, but, you know, having to sort of change tactics and figure out different ways forward because, you know, the riot really changed everyone's perspective. Yeah. Although you do start this season, it has to be said, with a roughly seven minute fight in an alleyway was that a statement of intent <laughs> yes and then that that actually is because we cut it down um <laughs> we we shot a much bigger fight but um yeah it was really important to me um i wrote the first episode and, and what was really important to me was that we kind of a we welcome back our fans who've waited patiently for three years and remind them you know what we do better than anyone else on television um and just remind them how much fun it is to watch our action sequences um, and, and so we just, yeah, we wanted to do a big kind of, you know, balls to the wall, welcome back to warrior fight. And that's what, that's how we started. It. Oh, it, it definitely does that. And one of the things which I found really interesting is that you yourself are a martial artist, uh, which is kind of cool. So this must give you a real retired, sort of kinship with all this yeah. retired, but you know, so you did it for a fair yeah. amount of time, you know, yeah. I, I, myself and the same, I did it for a long time, long since retired, haven't done it in ages. Uh, but but I'm imagining as a martial artist, like when you write these episodes, it's far more than, you know, script note, it all kicks off. Like, I feel like you're probably quite prescriptive. Oh, no. Yeah, I, I, I do write. And, and so do, you know, uh, Josh and Evan, who are the showrunners, like, you know, we all write very detailed fights. That's been my rule since my first television show is, but that doesn't mean that what I write is what ends up on screen. Um, I write incredibly detailed fights so that I can tell the story of the fight. But then Brett Chan, our stunt coordinator, he takes my intention and then replaces it with much cooler, sorry, with, with much cooler stuff. So I, I write the fights with great detail, knowing that that detail is, is only to tell Brett the story so that Brett could then make it look a lot cooler. But I wonder if that also, it, partly to do with your background, I'm sure, is in there, but it also speaks to how you use fights in this show. Because I feel like a lot of, I, mean, I can't speak to all scripts, but I feel like a lot of shows, films, they use fights as punctuation. It's an action film. Like we probably need a fight after 15 minutes. I feel the fights in this show and in, in all the stuff you do, they either tell a story or they deepen the relationship with the characters. Like it feels like there's a reason whenever it kicks off. Yeah, we're very careful not to just have gratuitous uh, fights on this show because I think that really dilutes the, the the action. It dilutes the martial arts and it dilutes the impact of the fights. Um, one of the terms we've been using since we did the pilot was consequential fights. Like we can't see somebody get kicked in the head 10 times and then show up for dinner on skate, right? Like 
these fights have to hurt. And so we, we, we really try to shy away from the crouching tiger model, which really just, which is a celebration of martial arts and I'm not knocking it. I think it's beautiful, but we try to shy away from that. And we try to also shy away from sort of what the Marvel movies have done, which is kind of like, um, it's just, you know, a flurry of choreography that doesn't seem to actually really hurt. Um, but what we we want these fights to feel like dirty, gritty street fights. And so we try to capture the beauty of the martial arts within um, the uh, through the prism of a very dirty street fight. Yeah, it helps that you're not chasing PG-13 ratings. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But it's like the right. word scrap is used quite a lot. And I feel like that's a really good descriptor for the kind of fights yeah. you have. I will say this third season is the first time in this show there's been a fight where I've actually had to look away from the screen. Uh, it involved oh, wow. a, a fight in a bar. <laughs> And in fact, an incident involving a bar top. And I was like, oh, I can't watch that. I can't watch that. <laughs> well, that's not even a fight. That was just that was just somebody making a point. Well, he made the point yeah. and made it well. Um, yeah. But uh, one thing, like I mentioned at the beginning of this, like I'm a big fan and uh, have been since the very beginning that you started doing TV. Like we, on this podcast, we had a regular segment which ran for about two or three years called the Banshee segment. And it was oh, specifically wow. a segment for amazing shows that we don't think enough people have seen. And the very first one I talked about was Banshee, which I've been obsessed with since it started. And again, in the UK, it just wasn't a show that people knew about that anyone had heard of. And obviously now... Well, it, now wasn't, that- it wasn't much better in the United States <laughs> You were on Cinemax, yeah. right? And the problem with doing show, the great thing about doing shows for Cinemax was total creative freedom. And the downside was they had a really small subscriber base. And you just sort of wished, our wish for years was HBO would just absorb Cinemax so that if you had HBO, you had Cinemax. The fact that you had to pay a separate subscriber fee for Cinemax was a great barrier to viewership because they didn't have anywhere near the same amount of program. I feel Banshee, certainly over here, took off on DVD. Like once it was available on DVD, that's when people saw it. Yeah. And the other thing that's happened over the years is, you know, Ann Starr, who played Lucas Hood, he's now Homelander on The Boys. So his higher profile brought, you know, millions of fans to Banshee. And then moving us to to the HBO Max platform and then the Max platform has also helped everybody discover the show. So a lot more people have seen it now than they did when we aired. And and rightfully so, because it is an incredibly good show. I love the idea, and I'd read somewhere, that this sort of span out of a Count of Monte Cristo idea that you had in high school. Am I right in saying that? Yeah. Yeah. The Banshee was based on a, an idea I'd always had on and off since high school, because I love the concept in the Count of Monte Cristo about how the guy goes to prison, and when he reemerges, he does it in a way where nobody knows who he is. He's like got this new identity, and he comes to sort of have his revenge. And so, you know, for me, it started out as a very different idea. It was much more of a a broadcast network idea about a a cop who secretly was a criminal, but nobody knows it. But he uses all his criminal skills to solve crimes. And then as as I got more mature and television got more mature, it it evolved into something much darker, which was just a stolen identity and a guy who's hiding behind the badge of of a sheriff to, to actually pursue his own agenda with no interest in law and order. And that's where Banshee was born. But it's just, it's such a fun show. And I think it's partly because the characters are all, and it's not even just that they're morally complex. They have inner lives that almost sort of grate against their external, you know, personas, which I love. With Kai Proctor, phenomenal villain. Also, the show has a mythology to it. It feels like it has deep roots. Like there's a lot of material that's not on the screen, but feels like was definitely in your head when you were writing it. And I wonder, is, is that kind of your novelist roots, do you think, where you do all that groundwork internally? Yeah, it's 100% that I I came into TV having written six novels. And, you know, when you write books, you really have the room and the time 
to develop all that backstory and to put it on the page and to, you know, to make those connections. Um, you know, in screenwriting, you, you can't really do that. You can imply it and you can infer it, but, you know, it gets really clunky if you start doing a million flashbacks. And so, um, but, but to develop TV, I think the only way to do it successfully is to plan it like a novel. So you know all those stories. And that's practical so that if you go into picture show and people ask questions, you have those answers and you can make them feel that there's a whole world behind this. But also it affects the way every writer on the show writes scripts. If they know a whole lot about these characters that may not have been revealed yet, it's still you write denser, you know, more complicated characters, even if even if all that information isn't readily available to the viewer. Yeah, it's like you see the tip of the iceberg, but you know there's more right. beneath the surface of the water. Exactly. Uh, also yeah. in Banshee, the greatest dis- discovery, I would say, which is Hoon Lee, who's, I guess, become like your lucky charm since then. Um, yeah, Hoon, I don't do, I don't like doing shows without Hoon. When I did in between, in between when Warrior went off the air and when it came back, I did two seasons of a show called C oh, on yes. Apple TV. And, and I, I put Hoon on that as well. I wrote a role for him just because, well, because basically I've never not gotten another season when I'm working with Hoon. So. <laughs> He's my uh, he's my lucky charm, and I also we're you know we're good friends, and also I feel like he adds an immediate he raises the IQ of every show, and so no matter what character I have him play, I know my writing is going to sound smarter if uh, Hoon's in the show. I mean, there is something like Job feels like he is the MVP of Banshee, and frankly, Chow comes very close in in Warrior as well. There, he's a, yeah, he's an incredible actor, and Job especially was a was a really great part. But I enjoyed him as Toad in C. Obviously, you mentioned that. C is also one of my favorite shows, which is one that I'm slightly obsessed with. And I just wondered, you know, obviously you're someone who's been a novelist, you've created these worlds. Stepping into someone else's world, though, obviously that's a very different thing. Like, did that feel slightly weird? Because I guess you've got to gel with their mythology to really take it on board. It's not just stepping into someone else's world. It's stepping into a world created by Steve Knight, who's, you know, obviously one of the greats. I, you know, I, I had tremendous... Uh, apprehension about it. And um, I always imagined I would only run shows that I created. Um, And I only stepped in after I kind of had his blessing and the blessing of the network of Apple to completely reinvent them. I didn't reinvent the mythology, but I sort of treated it as that whole mythology only exists geographically in one spot of this world. And I'm going to move everybody from the mountains down to the cities and be able to change the mythology. Because I didn't think I didn't think I would be creatively fulfilled simply executing more of, of his world. And I also, I didn't want to try to execute Steve Knight's world because that's setting yourself up for failure. So I, I think, you know, once I had everyone's blessing to kind of create my own world within this larger mythology, then, then I was excited to try it. I mean, what did you think when you first saw that show? Because I remember when it first came out, because it was one of the launch shows for Apple TV+. Plus, yeah. And I was just like, this is amazing, but how the fuck did this get commissioned? Like, it's a show where everyone is blind, where the queen, like, masturbates when she prays. Like, it was so completely off-the-wall bonkers. Yeah, I have to say that, you know, if I hadn't just been through the heartbreak of Warrior going off the air, I may not have taken the job. <laughs> but at the time, I guess I was feeling vulnerable. And I was watching something that clearly all the people making it were passionate and committed to. And, you know, Warrior also, you can't tell from watching it necessarily, we have a very low budget. And this was a show with a, C was a show with a massive budget. Uh, Jason was, had just become a massive movie star. 
And so I think I was also, it appealed to me to try to do this and see what it's like doing this on a much larger budgetary scale. The answer turned out to be exactly the same. But um, I wanted to see, you know, okay, I've done the... I've done the you know, $55 million version of a season. Let's see what the $120 million of a season feels like. And uh turns out it feels exactly the same, but it was um it, it was it was just an adventure. And I, I did also I met with Jason and got very excited about working with him because he was so passionate about the show and he had his own mythology he had developed about it, which I really tapped into. And so I was excited to work with him. I was excited to, you know see what Apple TV plus was going to be. There were a lot of reasons to do it, but I don't know that I would choose to do that again. <laughs> I mean, it did give you the chance to tap into something slightly different. Like you did that very kind of brawling type fighting in Banshee. You've done the kind of wushu stuff in Warrior. The blind fighting in C was something I've never seen before. I mean, Rutger Howard did it in Blind Fury. Like it has been done elsewhere, yeah. but it felt like yeah. it had a very distinctive flavor in the show. Yeah. And in fairness, that was all really developed before I got there. So I didn't have to invent that. Like I, I was able to just ride that wave. And and a lot of that came from the stunt department. It came from the, the movement department. Um, they worked in, you know, those two teams worked together. There was this uh, Joe Streche, who was our blindness consultant and a producer on the show. He had his movement team and they would work with the stunt team. And all that was kind of, I can't take credit for any of that, really. Still cool. Still cool stuff. Uh, one yeah, thing I, just, I mean, I will take credit yeah, for it. Do but, it. Absolutely. You know, but I can't. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you, you've worked, obviously, in different cross. You've worked across Cinemax. Now, technically, you're obviously working for HBO themselves. You work for Apple. I don't know. I mean, how... Actually, here, they're not called HBO. Now, they're called Max. Of course HBO, they are, yes. And, and HBO is one piece of Max, but technically, I think Warrior is an a max original and not an hbo well we have a channel over in the uk called dave so it gets very very confusing uh, <laughs> but uh, how different is it making a show for a streaming sort of like schedule as opposed to like regular tv the only thing that to me there's two things that have changed one is the delivery dates in other words when you have to finish editing completely hand in a totally complete episode um to the bosses um, that's become a little more pressured because they need much more time now to do what they call subs and dubs and basically put in subtitles and audio for 90 languages. And so they need your material much sooner than in the old cycle. And the other thing that has happened, I think it, it may have started with the pandemic, but it has happened in general now is nobody is clinging to the annual cycle anymore. Uh, it used to be really important to me that we come back every year in June, right? And now it's like they have many other considerations. And so you may be doing this year and you may be, it may be 18 months till the next season airs. It may be two years. I mean, House of the Dragon is probably going to be close to two years, right? Like, I don't know the cycles, but they're less concerned. You know, they're just disrupting all the cycles, which I don't think is necessarily a bad thing, but it's, it's, it's just been in a bit of an adjustment. But in the actual writing and making of this show, it doesn't feel any different. I mean, look, we've established... Uh, from talking about all of these shows that my kind of shows or my go-to shows are very much your shows but i'm curious that like, what are your go-to shows what are what are you what is your banshee i suppose if i did a banshee segment well, with you if you had to pull out a show what would it be it's it's really it, it varies from time I, i'm very diverse like the stuff i write on on the movie side and and then my novels is nothing like the stuff i do in tv for the most part um, so i'm i'm all over the place like you know i i enjoy uh jack ryan um, and at the same time, um, there was a show 
that I discovered on Netflix that had been on epics before that, that had, I didn't feel had gotten its due called, I think it was called Startup, um, which I had really liked, which was three seasons of a thriller about a group of people who are thrown together trying to start up uh, you know, a tech company. And there's lots of bad guys. It became really interesting. And, and I really love that. Um, I'm a big fan of Succession. Um, and most recently, The Diplomat with uh, Kerry Russell. I thought that first season was really great. I just like anything, anything that's sharply written. Um, I don't care if it's genre or not genre. I just like stuff where like the dialogue keeps hopping and you get invested in the characters. So I, off the top of my head, those are the ones that I've just uh, watched. I enjoyed the other two on, on HBO Max. I don't know if that's made it out to you guys, but you know, I'm, I'm kind of all over the map. Amazing. Uh, yeah. I mean, do you like as a writer? Like, do you ever find that watching other people's shows, it's hard to take your own writer's hat off when you're watching them? Do you find yourself thinking, "Oh, would I have done um, that? Would I have?" Less, less the writing. Well, you do become very conscious of like. Um, I was watching something the other day, and I'm like, "Why would a, a show with this budget be using a green screen there? Why didn't they just go shoot that practically? They probably were out of time, or it was a reshoot, or you know, like." You do occasionally only if it's glaring. Like if you get if you get wrapped up into the drama, I've never once thought that while watching Succession or The Diplomat. Like those shows, when when the writing really captures you, you just go with it. If you're starting to lag a little bit, you might notice, oh yeah, they tried to do a wonder there and it didn't work. And yeah, like you might start to notice it's more editorial than writing per se. Um, but it only ruins the the mediocre stuff for you. It doesn't ruin the good stuff. Yeah. It's, you know what's really funny when you talk about how the writing takes you, like sucks you in? Uh, Apple do a thing where they make their episodes available to press quite early on the press site. And so when right. I saw season, not so much three, three I think was finished, when I saw season two of C on there, so many of the effects weren't done. So it, you could literally see when you transition from location to soundstage, the green screen, all the marks. It's fascinating because we never see the joints when it's finished. Yeah. Yeah, we, we we were lucky with C. We had the budget to really smooth that stuff over. But we occasionally, because of the pandemic, had to shoot scenes with people who were not in the same place. And that's when you really need to use, you know, create background with blue screens and you need to shoot plates and insert them later. But there, there are moments in C, very few, but there are moments in C where I have two people in a scene who weren't even in Toronto at the same time. And that's what I had to do because of the schedule getting messed up by the pandemic. And the other thing we had was for season three of C, we had to shoot Jason out in 50 something days because he had to go do Aquaman because his schedule had not changed for Aquaman, even though we'd been down for five months because of the pandemic. So every day was shooting Jason for 57 days till he left. And there were times I had to shoot scenes of his that we had, we weren't ready to shoot those scenes and I had to shoot his part of those scenes and, you know, put them in later. We thankfully we didn't have to do a lot of it. But yeah, that that's when having that that budget helps. Yeah, I was going to say it's helpful because we we always say this on on the podcast. We don't know how it works at Apple, but because they commission the kind of stuff we do, it gives the impression that they just bring in creatives, give them a huge sack of cash and say go and do whatever the fuck you want. No, they make you fight for your money. <laughs> this is what's great about Apple is they're not reckless with money. They make you fight for your money, but if you make your case like if you come to them and say, we have a problem, we need to do X, but it's it'll take us a quarter of a million dollars over budget, but here's what has to happen if we don't do it. You make your case and they'll make a decision and it, they will never say like no to money if the creative is right, but they will, they will sometimes say, okay, we're going to front you that money, but we expect you to make it back in another episode. Like they'll, 
they do watch their money, but it's nice to know that they have your back. If, if something like something like COVID happened, you know, we were able to come back and they were able to fund our show with, with millions more in, in, in COVID materials and safety materials. And, you know, it, it's nice knowing those deep pockets are there, but, but they, you don't just have access to them. <laughs> it's no blank you know, checks. They, they, they run it responsibly. Yeah. If they get the sense, if they get the, I'm sure if they get the sense you're treating it like a blank check. <laughs> That, that door will shut really hard. <laughs> I'm sure it would. Well, Jonathan, thanks so much for your time. It's uh, it's much appreciated. And, uh, and thank, thank you for you bringing for Warrior back. Oh, absolutely. Thank absolutely. you. I, I hope we're back for a while. And, uh, you know, thanks for watching it. And I hope it, yeah, I think it's coming out in UK pretty soon. It but, is. I think uh, we're getting them all together as a kind of box set on Sky, which is binge. which is very exciting. Yes. All right. Perfect way to watch it. Great. You know, so many of our actors are UK based. So I'm, I'm excited for them that it's finally going to come out in their hometowns. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. Well, thanks very much indeed. Right. Thank you. That was me and Jonathan Dropper. Let's move on to reviews. Now, as we go into reviews, I should say that there was some dissent during the live show. In fact, there was accusation <gasps> on behalf of my two co-pilots that I give too much away in my introduction <laughs> to the reviews. <laughs> so, so to remedy that, I'm just going to say Starstruck is back for Series 3. It's a show. Kay, <laughs> how struck were you by this series return? <laughs> I was very struck. I love this show. Okay, so thanks, James, for letting me uh, say something about it, which is that for anyone who hasn't seen it, it follows Jesse, a um, Kiwi millennial who works in a cinema, has, has a flat share with a best mate, Kate, and is generally just sort of, you know, just ambling through life when she has a one-night stand with Tom, a famous film star unbeknownst to her, played by Nikesh Patel. And over the course of the two series, basically it follows their on-off relationship. And at the end of season two, we kind of see that in this quite sweet scenes, actually, like um, in a lake, Jessie finally opens up to Tom and tells him how she feels because she's not very good at that. She's a bit like emotionally stunted. And she finally reveals that, you know, she really does care for him. She likes him. And we get the impression they're going to make a go of it. As season three opens, guys, and I can say this, it's not a spoiler, it's within the first few seconds, there is a montage which shows their relationship and how it progresses. And the bottom line is, when series three opens, they have broken up, which is heartbreaking for anyone who loves this show. And um, we see them have yet another awkward encounter, this time at Kate and Al's wedding. Um, so we learn that Tom's moved on. And so Jesse then sort of like, you know, takes action. And so this season is all about, will they get back together? Won't they get back together? Um, can they just be friends? And I have to say, I absolutely fucking love this show. Like, I love it. In the same way that, you know, I briefly mentioned The Lovers. These two rom-coms, I just think, give me so much joy. They're so well written. Rose Matafeo created this and co-wrote it with Alice Sneddon. And I just think they are so good at um, sort of mining all the joy and pain of adulthood and relationships, all the awkwardness and messiness that comes from being an adult trying to have a relationship. And these two characters I'm just so invested in that, you know, I can't bear the fact that they might not be together at the end. But yeah, it's just, it's so, so good. I agree. I'm in full agreeance. There's a genius, the opening montage is genius because it kind of sums up, you know, it kind of lulls you into this sense that, um, you know, lots of lovely romantic things that they've done together. Uh, and um, then it kind of goes, then you kind of hear just a, a kind of subtle little mention on the 
audio of them in in, in the, of this montage them having a little disagreement about kids she says something like oh remind me to never have fucking kids or something like that um and he he kind of grimaces and you're like oh okay there's a little bit of conflict there and then it cuts to pretty much another 10 seconds later to two years on when they're completely separate and you think oh that's and i thought that was really cleverly done kind of pulling the rug from under you and what Starstruck's always Starstruck's always done really well is they, they do brilliant social occasions. Obviously, there's a brilliant the brilliant party episode in the last series, and this opening wedding episode has so many. Apart from the wanting to know what the hell's going on with um, Jesse and Tom, which obviously is the focal point of the whole thing, but the wedding itself and the speeches and the um, you know the kind of the couple with their little little girl who they don't like, they send her off doing hide and seek and she disappears for hours and comes back when they're like pissed on the dance floor going you didn't come and get me you didn't come and get me and then she disappears again they're like brilliant um, little moments of what happens at weddings and i am i have like an analogy to weddings anyway at the best of times because of the awkwardness of the social situation i'm fascinated to know what james says because it does there is a lot of heavy cringe factor in um starstruck but it's kind of done so lightly with such a lightness of touch that i think it you almost like don't realize it's cringe a lot of it is cringe comedy in the classic form and i just think obviously because it is this is a rom-com writ large you know the whole thing is will they won't they and and obviously they will get together but it's like rom-coms are often about how can they make the twisted turns and machinations of a relationship work across quite a long period of time, especially TV romantic comedies like this, now in its third season. And and yet it feel, it's very cleverly feels real that they would have split up and that they're really it's really awkward between them now at the beginning of this series. So it totally works. Oh, it's funny. It is romantic. You're totally invested in their relationship. You're rooting for both of them to get back together because they are really good together. Uh, it's 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 a triumph. Yeah. We should give a little shout out um, to Lorne McFadden who plays Liam because he's a great addition to the cast, and I think that's how they are able to like, you know, show how this relationship, how realistic it is that you know when each of them break up and they sort of move on, but then maybe they'll discard these partners and get back together, but who knows? So, but I thought he was really good. He added a lot. He's the one who she meets at the wedding, right? Mm. Yeah. 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 Yeah, He's great. Oh, yes, 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 yes. Okay. I wanted who you're referring to, but yes. Yeah, the Scottish guy. Yeah, that was fun. That was fun. No, this is a really good show because it's very charming. And also I ha- I have a soft spot for this particular dynamic, you know, kind of Notting Hill star-crossed thing where it's, you know, a uh, regular person meets celebrity type rom-com. Um, but I think, yeah, I think it's, it's funny. It's charming. That said, this particular episode, I did not enjoy as much as I've enjoyed it before, partly because the cringe, which is not, it's not a heavily cringe based comedy. This episode had a lot of cringe because it takes place at a wedding and there is unfortunately a speech and the part with the speech, genuinely, I had to close my eyes and just, I, and just like curl up into a ball. I couldn't, I couldn't cope with it. It's so realistic though, because the, these things often are really cringe. I mean, having given speeches at weddings, mine were fabulous. So I don't know what you're talking about. Uh, oh my but, god! But yes, thank Such God. Please God, please God, let me never witness a James speech at a wedding. <laughs> well, you know, for a start, there'll be a little clicky device so you can put uh, something on the projector. Oh yeah, right. hundred percent. So I can put up sort of like musical clips oh, yeah. from Star Trek: Strange New Worlds. Yeah, 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 that's that's exactly yeah. what happens. Of course. <laughs> 
yeah, no, it was it was a lot of fun. I do. I've I still only watched a handful of episodes of the show. Like I, I still haven't, you know, I haven't watched them all at all. It's been on my list for ages, but I haven't. Wow. I haven't watched. I them I, I set out to watch. I wanted to really take this slowly because I knew I love the show, right? So I thought, right, I'll just watch first episode, maybe two, you know, to review it for this and also for the magazine. And then before I know it, it's like I'm six episodes. I'm done. I'm emotionally raw. I can't, you know, like just gone through a whole roller coaster of emotions. And then now I'm just so desperately sad that it's so, you know, like I've seen it all. Yeah. So um, it's easy to binge, is what I'm saying. It, it uh, yes, that I can believe. I was about to say yes, it is, but I have not, so I can't really say because I've never binged it. But I do believe you, so that's good. Uh, Starstruck, <laughs> which comes back to BBC One when, Boydie? BBC Three. Monday, BBC Three. Uh, yes, today at ten o'clock with a double bill. It will then also all be available, all six episodes on the iPlayer, and then I think it's repeated on BBC One at the end of the week. But I can't. Okay. Friday, yeah. Friday, it's oh, Friday. There you go. Thank you. Yeah, Friday. Fine, fine, fine. Right, time for another show. Specifically, the following events are based on a pack of lies, which comes to BBC One. Boyd will now talk about the show, and I strongly suspect his review will be based upon a pack of lies. I, I like your new intro style. I mean, do you know what the irony is? That it's a bit of a, um, a bit of a uh, unfortunate. Um, I've shot myself in the foot situation whereby it's actually quite handy that you do a little plot description. I because, know. Yeah. But the, but the thing is, boy, yeah. rather than just like pulling back a little bit and not doing as much, he's not oh, sick. He's but yeah. so like he, yeah. he, he'll either do it. Look at him. He's you are so, hoist he's so by your own petard. Is what yeah. you are. Yeah, it's a shot yeah. foot, shot in myself in the foot, hoist by my petard. James is grinning from ear to ear like a <laughs> yeah, smug, sickening. smug twat he is. Um. <laughs> <laughs> Can I just say something? At the live event, someone came up to me. One of the things they said was like how like we all suddenly turn on each other. We take turns like, and I thought they were just saying about me like turning on James. They're like, no, and then suddenly Boyd will do it and you'll do it to each other. And I was like, oh yeah, that's just our love. Like this is how we communicate. <laughs> yeah. Um, but the, the reason why it's useful when James does his little intros is because obviously I am very much, I'm the, I always get accused of spoiling things. So I think if James just does the limit of the plot description, then I know I can't go beyond that limit of the plot. So it kind of helps out. Anyway, I mean, this, this series, which is entitled, the following events are based on a pack of lies is the boldness of the conception of this series and the execution of it is very much reflected in that title. So that is a maverick title, right, for a, for a drama series. And yet it kind of sets the tone because this is a maverick show. It kicks off intriguingly with a kind of montage seemingly of real people um, talking about kind of them being victims of crime, of true crimes, of, of kind of like especially con artists. And... Then you're thrust into this situation where you meet the three main characters who are played by um, one called Cheryl, played by Marianne Jean Baptiste, who's a best selling author of like fantasy novels, kind of Game of Thrones esque fantasy novels. Alice, played by Rebecca Statton, who's absolutely brilliant in everything. And a character played by um, Alistair Petrie from um, uh, uh, Sex Education, exactly. Um, and he is this kind of like quite famous figure kind of self-help guru type of figure who happens to be best friends apparently with the equivalent of David Attenborough, who's played by Derek Jacobi. What happens is they, they're introduced, we're introduced to them separately, but Rebecca Statton's character accidentally sees Alastair Pictures' character in in her where where she lives, and she is stunned and shocked and appalled just at the as she sees him and recognizes him. And the kind of mystery of the show is why is she so absolutely struck dumb by seeing him and what has he done to her in the past if anything 
Um, is it a case of mistaken identity? Is he re- is he really who he says he is? Um, then he kind of meets the Je- Marianne Jean Baptiste character and kind of like tries to get involved in her. And then there's stuff about Alistair. And Al- Alistair Pitchett, by the way, also addresses the camera as well, a bit kind of like sub fleabag style as well. And you're not quite sure. So it's a very kind of multi layered. Um, kind of quite ambitiously shot. It's shot in a very kind of heightened reality style. Um, there are incidents in it, like there's a kind of launch of, of Alistair Peach's character's new thing that is quite comedic and funny and slapsticky in a way. It is, it is, I think, tonal, tonal shifts. Tonal shifts. Tonal shifts, yeah. games. But I think it, re- I really liked it. I thought this was a, re- it's just different. Like, you know, I think. Even though it's dealing with stuff, I, we think, we assume it's dealing with stuff, you know, kind of dealt with in true crime dramas. This isn't a true crime drama. This is a fictional thing completely. But it's touching on kind of subject matter that we see quite a lot in TV drama. But the way it's executed and the way it's written and the way it's put together narratively is really, I felt, really different and innovative and just felt really fresh and new. So, that, and again, to go back to that title, it's an eye-catching title, but it's a very eye-catching show. And the other thing that struck me about it is all of these char- actors, Marianne Jean-Baptiste, Rebecca Stanton, and Alice Picture, who are the, the three main characters, we really used to them in supporting roles, mostly in big ensemble shows. And this is a brilliant bit of casting because you've got three fantastic actors who are all joint leads, if you like. And I think that's so refreshing because you see the same faces, let's face it, time and time again in TV drama, you know. Um, to have three slightly less well-known, I think, to the general viewing public actors cast in these roles is brilliant, and it works really well. And and all I'll say, I, I think I hopefully I've avoided spoilers, but I, it had me early on. It had me hooked early on. I think the storyline's fascinating, the character's really interesting, and you really want to know how it's all going to play out. But the final scene, <laughs> all I'll say is, oh my god, I was like horrified and intrigued. And you're like, what the fuck is going to happen with that? And that's, I'll limit myself to that. But it really has a brilliant final scene, which completely traps you into wanting to carry on watching it. So, yeah, I'm in. Yeah, I agree. It's very gripping. And I, I really like the premise. I also really appreciate the fact that we're picking up where we do. So we don't, exa- we don't see exactly how Rob wooed Alice and instead her. And we hear stuff from family members. And that actually, this is more focused on the victims and how they how Alice is hoping to bring him to justice about things that have happened in the past and hopefully prevent another victim um, from being treated as she has been. Uh, the, the thing I disagree on, like I do like the innovation, innovative nature of it, but I found some of the stylistic decisions, like the flashing stuff up on the screen and Cheryl's book reviews being read out, it just took me out of the drama and I it didn't add anything for me. So... Um, I was less keen on that, but overall, yeah, very compelling. And I, after the last scene, which you referred to, I definitely want to see, make sure that everything's okay. I want to see how it pans out. Oh, it's weirdly, that's exactly, that was my issue with this, actually, that it took me out of the story um, because it has a lot of um, stylistic flourishes. It does all sorts of things. Like you switched to Alistair Petrie kind of addressing the camera. Uh, it's got a slightly odd Again, tone. We are, we do love our tonal shifts. It's not so much that it has tonal shifts. It's the tone of it is very specific. That it's kind of like, it's not a serious drama. It's not a comedy. It falls in this kind of no man's land between the two, where it's quite archly entertaining but the thrust of the story is dramatic but it's also slightly absurd at times and a little bit wacky weirdly like it reminded me at times of something like you know like the coen brothers burn after reading like where it has that slightly where you're not quite sure 
how you're supposed to take it. Um, and so I think all the way through that, I was trying to do these little g- mental gymnastics to get in on the same frequency because this is uh, Ginny and Penelope Sn- uh, Skinner created the show and they've clearly gone for this very heightened, very specific feel for it. And I was trying to tune my brain into it all the way through and struggling a little bit. Uh, I do, I'm, I'm the first to admit though, I do think that is entirely my failing rather than theirs. It's just that I, I think I struggled to access it. I definitely think what they were doing was genius. I love Rebecca Sutton. I thought she was brilliant in, uh, in Rufus Jones's home. She was also a bit in Rome back in the day interesting fact for you um and i was curious about what was going on exactly as boyd said like these are supporting characters and it's great to see them getting a more of a lion's share of 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 the well lines let's be honest uh in in you know uh in, in the show so I, I i liked that aspect of it but it just didn't quite get its claws into me so uh, by the end of it i was a bit like hmm. oh it totally got its claws into me it is very stylized it's a bit like um kind of like the coen brothers meets wes anderson or something yeah you know? yeah it yeah. has yeah it's, it it's, has a w- but the thing is it has it has a quality to it which you could describe as smug and i quite like a smug show so i have no problem with that of course you like a smug show i do show. like yeah. a smug show <laughs> captain smug but it's not there. necessarily something like, it's quite art and it's just it's a little bit twee at times and just a little bit altered um which just isn't my thing personally but, I, but again, you, as no. you said, it's it's different. Like it feels different from anything else on television. I definitely give it that. Like it's, I mean, it stakes its own, you know, stretch of land there, and it does a good job with that. Um, you definitely can't say it's derivative. Um, but when does this land, and where, Boydie? Uh, BBC One Tuesday at nine o'clock. Tuesday at nine o'clock. Next up, The Tower. First series involved a building. K. <laughs> <laughs> I'm wheeling you out uh, to talk oh. about this one. <laughs> oh, boom! See okay, now, so see the this... problem is now all you get is the pun. There's nothing else, just the pun, I know. which there's, makes there's it even to worse. Buffer it. Yeah, yeah, I know. <laughs> no shock absorbers. So this this is the aftermath of season one, um, and Tahira Sharif's character Lizzie has returned to work. She's a PC. She returned to work, having faced a tribunal for the case, um, everything that happened in season one. Boyd can go into it because actually I've got to admit something. And it's I say it with regret. I didn't actually finish this. I watched a couple of episodes didn't and I never. You? Yes, I know. And I'm so annoyed. Not for any reason other than um, I got busy and then I forgot. And then when I was watching this, I was like, oh, shit. So I am going to go back. But anyway, DC Sarah Collins, played by Gemma Whelan, has, is also back. And she's joined the homicide team. Um, who are knee-deep in an investigation. And she's tasked with solving a cold case of a missing teen um, who went missing 25 years ago. And they've got a new lead which suggests that it was murder and it offers up a convicted sex offender as the prime suspect. Um, And so her boss considers it case closed. But as we know about her character, she is tenacious. She um, is dogged in her determination to um, seek justice and she doesn't cut corners. And so she does, you know, she carries out her own um, deeper investigation, ignoring her boss and kind of following up her own leads. And she works very closely with a character called um, Elaine Lucas, who is unflattering known as Fat Elaine, which <laughs> I don't think we should encourage. But yeah, she's a DC as well. And she works reduced hours. And I really love actually the dynamic of those two because Elaine kind of doesn't give a shit. Like she just wants an easy life. She's very funny, but she's belligerent, to say the least. And so I really like seeing how that relationship, like, it thaws out and, and a relationship actually does develop between them. But um, yeah, so she she's working on this cold case, but at the same time, she misguidedly also takes on another murder case, much to the team's annoyance, because they've just finished um, an investigation into a chicken shop shooting, which they keep on mentioning throughout the series, chicken shop, chicken shop. Um, they've done that. They deserve a rest, but she's taking on this new case. And so they're all pretty pissed off with her. And... L- 
it's a case which Lizzie, it starts a domestic violence case and it's a case that Lizzie has a connection to and it rapidly escalates. So that's that's where we find it. I just think it's so brilliantly plotted because it keeps up the momentum for these cases and the intrigue for these um, both these cases. The chicken shop we don't get into too much. It's just sort of like a vehicle to later for you know something to develop. But I think each of those cases are really compelling for different reasons. And, you know, like with the cold case, we get to see a sort of more vulnerable side to Sarah. It's kind of like it brings up very personal feelings for her that she has to work through. Um, And then the current murder case just is relentlessly tense. So I just, this is like Starstruck. We, um, I was only going to watch one episode of each and I ended up polishing off the six episodes for that as well. So that's what I've been watching this week. The two shows (laughs) from start to finish. Um, It's great. Have either of you read the books? No. Because this is based on Kate London's books. There's a trilogy of books, the Metropolitan Trilogy, which kind of explains the structure of this. Because I don't know what, if you haven't read the books, I wonder what you guys were, maybe less so UK if you didn't finish the first season, but or first series, I should say, given that this is, in fact, an English show. But uh, what you were expecting from the second series, because I was not expecting this. So... I was expecting it to be Gemma Whelan, new case, new characters, new setup. Because you've got because the whole thing is all the first series is all about one specific incident, which happens in the first episode, and it's about unraveling that. And it's this missing police officer, it's the slightly dodgy inspector, and it's her kind of navigating this and being almost, almost absolutely at her own expense, just doggedly searching for the truth at the expense of her own career. And so it's very much about her character and how she's so myopic and just doesn't care what anyone thinks. She just goes for it. Uh, which is fairly regular in a police officer on a TV show. It's not an uncommon trait. But, but she played it really well. Gemma Whedon did that. But this was interesting because it's not just her. It picks up with all the characters from the first season and how all of their careers continue to intertwine with each other, which I thought was very interesting. I think it's slightly less focused than season one or series one uh, because it's not about, it's not connected to one specific thing. It is, they all have their own separate stories except they do overlap. But yeah, it was it was a pleasant surprise because I love uh, Emma J. Scanlon as a dodgy inspector, Kieran Shaw, who apparently is still in work. Uh, and I thought Tahira Sharif was very good as Lizzie Adama in the first series. And actually she gets more to do this time around, which is great. Jimmy Akingbola, okay, uh, also who was her uh, partner in the first series and, and recurs in her new homicide job here. Um, so yeah, I, I, I was pleasantly surprised with how this one came together. Uh, Boyd, were you, because you loved the first one as well, didn't you? Yeah, I think we yeah, both I, kind of raved about it. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, 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 yeah, I haven't read the books either, but I, as I understand it, it, the books do also focus on these four main characters um, of uh, Susan Collins, Lizzie, Lizzie Adama, Steve Bradshaw, and Kieran Shaw, played by, mm. as you say, brilliantly, slightly over the top, as is his wont by Emma <laughs> Scanlon. But he is a massive Robin, that guy. And, and, yes. Um, yes, he is. Brilliantly clashes, brilliantly clashes with um, Sarah Collins. Gem- Gemma Williams' scenes with him are fantastic, I think. But yeah, I think, it, I think it feels quite different because it's focusing on these four main characters. I think, I think Gemma Whelan is the star of the show. I mean, she is phenomenal. She is, you know, to this show... What you know, prime suspect Helen Mirren was the prime suspect, and that's there's no greater compliment from me because prime suspect is one of my favorite shows of all time back in the day. Um, and she's just so brilliant, and it is her kind of doggedness and her, um, she kind of deals with she has so much shit thrown at her, like she she joins the, the, the homicide command, and the new boss 
um, who's played by Stuart McQuarrie, who's this brilliantly offhand with her, gives her this cold case. She just wants to get rid of her, basically, because she's just too much. She's too much. She's too by the book. She's too too much hardworking, in, in a way, for the rest of them. I mean, all it, it's got subtle critiques of the Metropolitan Police. And, of course, Kate London, who wrote the novels, did actually work for the Metropolitan Police, so she knows what she's talking about. And, of course, the Met has become a very controversial institution over the last few years, particularly in its treatment of women, etc., as we all know about. And I think it doesn't soft-soap the flaws, I think particularly with the character played by Emmett Scanlon, who is such a dodgy figure. And that's so interesting, I think, that it really, you know, goes there when it comes to like looking at, at deeply flawed individuals and deeply flawed institution of the Met. And yet it's never preachy. It just completely feels very authentic. And, and I think that the, the it is much more complicated this time around. You're right, James. And it's, but it works. Yeah, the different, the cold case is as fascinating about this girl who disappeared on the day of Princess Diana's funeral. That cold case is as fascinating as the current case, the really, or, and the depiction of domestic abuse and how that, what happens is really hit, hits home massively well. Tamsin Althwaite, who plays the mother of the victim of domestic abuse, I mean, she is phenomenal. A reminder, obviously, you know, mainly known for East Enders, etc. But Tamsin Althwaite is a brilliant actress. And she just has to cut somehow conjure up the, the depths of trauma and misery and just and fury at the death of her daughter. And she's just brilliant. You know, she I, I just thought she, she's kind of almost stole the show. And you're right, and Kay, you're all right. The, her, the new partner. Uh, Fat Elaine, and, and, and she's called Fat Elaine, but she herself refers to herself as Fat Elaine. Everyone calls me yeah. Fat Elaine. It's such a brilliant bit of character building, and she's so kind of doesn't give a shit, and yes, she does. Um, that I love the two of them. They bounce, she bounces off um, Gemma Whedon fantastically well as well. It's a really, it's a, it's a highly superior crime drama because. It just feels real. And even when it goes slightly, gets slightly a little bit cartoonish with that, particularly with Emma Scanlon's character, it's fine because it just adds to the entertainment value. So, but it's pretty, I think it's like gritty, you know, it's got gritty realism in it to it. Um, and, and, and in some ways, it's quite understated. I think Jeremy Weiner's performance in that character is quite understated. So it just, I think it works really well. Patrick Harbinson adapts the Kate London books and he does a fantastic job. And uh, four episodes, is it? Yeah, four running consecutively Monday to Thursday. And in a, what I think they describe as a drama event. A James. drama event. And, yeah. an, and an event I want it is. more episodes. I know. Well, it is one of those shows, enough. isn't it? They're already mm. making series three now. So, you know. Well, there's oh, a trilogy brilliant. of books. So that, I think, was yeah. expected. Whether they'll go beyond that, I would have thought the, well, it was unlikely. And, but... No, and the fourth, she's worked, the fourth book's out soon. So it, it will Oh, okay. Will, so there's more coming. Yeah. Brilliant. Yeah, okay. they're more coming, definitely. Good, yeah. good, good. The Tower, then. A uh, couple more shows that only I have watched for obvious reasons. Uh, Warrior returns to Sky this week with its third season. And we didn't think we were going to get one. So, Warrior, this is the show that Jonathan Tropical created, which you've already obviously heard about, but it is based on an original idea by Bruce Lee. It's about the Tong Wars in uh, Chinatown in the 1800s in San Francisco. And this one stars Andrew Koji as Assam. And he kind of, he's looking for his sister, but he gets sucked into the, the world of the Tong, the Hop Way, which is the Tong that he joins. Uh, and the first season and second season were really, really good. The action was incredible. And then when Cinemax died, remember Cinemax kind of got closed down, this show kind of fell by the wayside and it didn't get put onto HBO Max originally. It did eventually make it onto HBO Max and then found an audience so it got a belated renewal for a third season. And rightly so, because it is really, really good. This third season starts with, I think it's a 12-minute 
fight in an alleyway. It's incredible. And it does feel very much like a like a, a statement of intent of what this is going to be. And there's a lot of uh, incredible action sequences. I've watched the whole of this season. I think it's 10 episodes. Uh, but genuinely, it is brilliant. And also, this isn't a final season. This is not them capping it off. This is a uh, very much an ongoing concern. So yes, a lot of stuff, uh, a lot of stuff is settled in this third season, but a lot of other stuff kind of kicks off and Assam's journey I think progresses significantly this time around but really genuinely great ensemble cast in this Olivia Cheng who's brilliant as our toy uh, and Diane Doan who plays his sister Mai Ling she's really really good as well so you've got Joe Taslim in it who is amazing and has been previous ones but Mark Dacoscus who you all know from the John Wick films is in this as well Really, really great action. Really, really brilliant sense of place to have this kind of reconstruction of Chinatown there. It's an enormous, lavish, elaborate set that they use for Chinatown. And it is so great. And it gives you a real sense of the time and the place. So, yeah, it's great. If you watch the first two seasons, this one is brilliant. If you haven't, maybe go back and watch them. They're on Sky as well. So, Warrior Season 3. Also out this week, Mine Season 5, which drops on Disney Plus on Wednesday. This is the fifth and final season of Mine's MC, which is a kind of spin-off slash sequel to Sons of Anarchy. Uh, It started out as a an Elgin James slash Kurt Sutter co-production. Kurt Sutter was fired a couple of seasons ago. And I have to say, this show lost some of its edge when he did. I think season four of this was really not good at all. I struggled through it and very nearly gave up. I'm quite glad I did stick with it because season five is better than season four and it does revolve a lot. As I say, this is the final one uh, and, you know, it goes to some pretty dark places this time around. Um, is it Mayans at its best? No, I wouldn't say so, but it is a step in the right dire- direction. J.R. Bourne, who had a, a kind of recurring, relatively minor role early on, now steps up as the big villain for this season. He's great. He's actually one of the best things about this particular season. He plays Isaac, one of the Sons of Anarchy. Um, but it's, um, yeah, I, I think it's lost some of its focus. I think the problem is the main characters have lost some of their sympathy as well. I'm not sure all of the plot threads that they've been kind of sewing all the way through have really come to fruition properly. And some of the ones that they should have tied off, they're drawing out as well. So I think, you know, it feels a little bit nebulous and a little bit circuitous this final season does. As I say, better than the fourth one, but definitely not the best. So if you have watched up until this point, definitely watch season five. If you're thinking of starting Mayans MC, you know, your mileage may vary. Do or do not. There is no try. Um, what else is out this week, buddy? What else have oh, we missed? Well, you'd never ask. Screw? Sorry. Screw. Screw, screw is you. back, yes. Yeah, screw, screw is back. Me. <laughs> yeah. Channel 4 Wednesday. The the really good, it was a really good prison set drama um, with Nina Sassania, um, Jamie Lee O'Donnell from um, uh, Derry Girls. Really good cast, very very good. Um, in any other week, we probably would have reviewed it, but it's a big week. Um, there is, uh, you mentioned Warren's and Mine's MC. The Wheel of Time is back on Friday, season two. It but, is. We're uh, going to be doing that on Pilot Plus. We're going to be doing that on Pilot Plus. Romesh and Tom take to Keshe's Castle. Tom Davis was our special guest last week at the live show, and part of the reason why was because of this. They're brought back to Keshe's Castle. Romesh and Tom do the voiceover. It's hilarious. It's uh, very funny. It's very funny. Uh, Miracle Workers is back. If that's your bag, <laughs> the Daniel Radcliffe thing. That's Pretty certain it wasn't our bag when we watched it. It wasn't. No, but Kay's a big fan of the writer of that. Uh, Simon Rich, books, yeah, he's very good. Yeah, that's back on Mon- yeah. Monday. Sky Comedy slash Now. Um, the Chelsea Detective on Acorn is back today, Monday the twenty eighth. The Adrian Scarborough kind of cozy crime, but very enjoyable in its way. I think that's about it. Okay. Well, do we have a pick of the week? Um, Starstruck. Oh yeah, I think it's uh, yeah Starstruck for me too. Oh, it's the Tower for me. Yeah, I really like um, the Tower um, as well. Yeah, yeah all but about the Tower. Slightly. Yeah. Starstruck okay. is good though. 
Well, that's it for this week's show. If you enjoyed it, do please head over to Apple Podcasts or somewhere else and leave us a five tower rating. Um, and uh, if you'd like to follow us on social media, we are at James C. Dyer, at Boyd Hilton, at Kara Barrow, and of course, at Pilot TV Pod. If you enjoyed this show, please do consider subscribing to Pilot Plus, which you can do at embronline.com slash Pilot TV, you know, because it helps us keep the lights on, pay the rent. And on next week's show, there's a lot going on next week. Not only do we have Rosamund Pike on to talk about Wheel of Time, not only do we have Johnny Flynn on to talk about the lovers, but we have the lovers to watch. We've also got the killing kind on Paramount Plus, which I mentioned. Justified City Primeval comes to Disney Plus as well. And the changeling, which Boyd mentioned, comes to Apple. So there is a lot to talk about next week. And me and Kay and Boyd will fight about that shortly and resolve it off air so you don't have to listen to it. Until then, though, pilot out. <laughs>